Missing car alert. Have you seen my car? A black OD with license plate L33339 Missing from Limerick. The owner John Murphy, that's me, I'm John Murphy, right? And I'm seeking the public's help in locating my car robbed outside my door last Saturday early Sunday. I know I drove it home from the pub and parked outside my door and it's gone. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of my car, contact me, John Murphy, immediately via Bangor Road Garda Station. They know me in there. Don't talk to anyone but Con Scott, Sergeant Scott. He's on the case. Any details, no matter how small, could be crucial in the search for my car, robbed outside my door. Okay, Black Audi. L three 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 nine three three. Go on, that'll do, Margaret. Hit stop on that there for me. Hello and welcome to all the best bits. Another audio commentary episode, and this time it's for the pick from best who done it scene. See Robert Cargill. He mentioned LA Confidential. That's the one we're doing tonight. And as usual, I'm joined by my co-host. Will Collins. How are you getting on, Kevin Lehan? Looking forward to LA Confidential. It's been a while. And it's kicking off our Christmas season because it's a Christmas film. Is it? It is. Hmm. Well, the big massacre in the film takes place on Bloody Christmas, as they refer to it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. The police beatings take place on Christmas. (laughs) But, you know, it's an easy mistake to make. And the voice that you just heard there is our guest for this episode, Renuk Nee Greer. That's perfect. Hello, Renuk. Well done. <laughs> How's it going? So for those who are unaware, Renuk is a writer-director of several short films. I've known you, as I was saying just earlier, for over a decade at this stage through your work as a script editor and as a development executive. You recently were a development executive on Rose Plays Julie and Float Like a Butterfly. And you're also just back from the Cork Film Festival where your latest short film, you've done four short films, but your latest short film, Don't Go Where I Can't Find You, just premiered there, didn't it? Yeah, had an Irish premiere there and we were in Vienna a month ago for a Slash Film Festival. Oh, awesome. Well, I offered all of the options for films for uh, Renick to come on the podcast because I've wanted to get around for a while. And you zeroed in straight on LA Confidential. It's kind of a, you know, it's it's definitely a foundational film for a lot of my tastes and uh, my own journey with cinema because I watched this for the first time far too young. Um, I was 12 when I saw this and not only saw it, but became obsessed with it and then subsequently started reading James Elroy at about 12, 13, 14. Oh, wow. And uh, that was way too young to be introduced to that kind of, uh, those kind of worlds. Did you watch it on VHS? Was that how you were introduced to it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it was definitely out of the cinemas at that point and it probably would never have come to Dundalk. It maybe it did, but we only had about two screens uh, in the Adelphi cinema at that time. But there was this really good video shop, Cassidy's video shop that had you know, like The Last Temptation of Christ hidden away from the Catholics yeah. out the back. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they kind of had a good range of, they didn't stock latest blockbusters. You could go to Extra Vision next door for that, but you could go yeah. and get, you know, really good films. So you would wander in there and grab something off the shelf that looked good. And 
this looked pretty good and I don't know what possessed me to take it off the shelf when I was 12 but I'm glad I did I'm glad you did as well and you're just reinforcing my theory that a lot of people that work in the film business saw something they shouldn't have way too young (laughs) and it became a formative experience for them yeah or a trauma that they have to work through. Exactly. Yeah. I, I do think there is a sort of a trying to understand <laughs> something that uh, really deeply affected you. Understand the power of it. An insatiable curi- curiosity for the rest of our lives. Definitely. Every, I think with every guest we've had so far, um, they've all had that uh, foundational uh, experience with a specific film. And it, that film seems to just resonate with them, you know, throughout their career. And it seems to be one that they are constantly going back to and touching upon. And it's so cool that yours is a noir. You're the first <laughs> person to it. Because myself and Kevin, we talk about Steven Spielberg so much. And for a lot of people, it was Steven Spielberg. But this is a, a really cool one to, to get into at the age of 12. And, uh, and you've got you're accompanied by your cat. I'm enjoying your cat I as know, well. This is <laughs> Special Agent Dale Cooper, who is going to make himself known all the way through this. Um, Twin Peaks reference. I Love know. It. And we have Kiki from Kiki's Delivery Service, but she's a model. So Great choice. This but, is why we should be doing the podcast on video, Will. <laughs> yeah. So. I wrote down a little uh, sort of blurb to help us ease into the film and sort of remind people that might be unfamiliar with it. Because when C. Robert Cargill uh, mentioned it on Whodunits, I was struggling to remember all the specific details of the film because I know it's quite plot heavy. Yeah. Uh, and so it's from 1997. It's a neo-noir crime film. It's based on, as Renuk said, a James Elroy novel of the same name. It was the third book in his L.A. Quartet series. It's a book that Elroy described himself as a f- fucking huge book, a book for the whole family, if your family is the Manson family. <laughs> <laughs> and it was adapted for the screen by Brian Hengeland and Curtis Hansen, who also produced it and directed it. And it stars, as many people will know, it stars Russell Crowe as hothead detective Bud White, who works more as an enforcer than a police officer, Guy Pearce as his cool-headed, steely, emotionless partner Ed Exley, and Kevin Spacey as a Hollywood sort of a hanger-on-ish type, uh, a, a narcotics a sergeant named Jack Vincenzi. Did I say that right, Rena? Vincenzi. Vincennes. Um, it's also co-stars Danny DeVito as the tabloid reporter Sid Hudgens, James Cromwell as the police captain Dudley Smith, David Strathairn as Pimp Pierce Pratchett and Kim Bassinger as Lynn Bracken, the sorrowful call girl with a resemblance to Veronica Lake. The film was nominated for nine Academy Awards, including Best Picture and it lost out on the night to uh, Titanic, which swept the board. But it did win two Academy Awards and that was Kim Bassinger for Best uh, Supporting Actress and Curtis Hansen and Brian Hengeland won for best script. Ah. So, yeah, I'll count this down. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get on the way back to a 1953 LA. I'm looking forward to this. Okay, and pressing play in three, two, one, play. There we go. And so for me. I, my relationship with this film is I did watch it on VHS when it came out and was immediately impressed by it. And up to this point, I had a zero to no interest in film noirs whatsoever. But this was the film that kind of switched on my noir radar a little bit, that noir appreciation gene. And, um, but I haven't, like Kevin said there, I actually haven't seen this in completion for 15 years, I'd say. Um, so, and it's quite plot heavy. 
what's uh, your relationship to it, Rina? Other than seeing it at 12, like, um, how many times would you say have you seen this film? Oh, God, I was just thinking that there when I, I brought it up. Um, I Like, without, without actually hearing the sound, I can hear every beat of the Dean Martin track and every line of dialogue so it's already it's such a great way into this film I'd say 60 odd times at least like it's sort of (gasps) oh my god wow it's one of those films that when I was young and especially being a teenager you sort of got obsessed with the style of it and it was kind of very similar like a gateway drug to film noir and other films about LA and about LA lore and true crime so it sort of sparked a massive string of different obsessions which would kind of take over my my teenage years but uh i think for me it's a kind of it's so feminine and stylish and classy and i think that's sort of the sparkle and the smut and everything is sort of why you keep going back to watch it all the time as well yeah it's funny that you don't though that you mention or we both mentioned uh it being in noir because curtis hansen said that he wasn't making a film noir or hmm. a neo-noir that oh. that was not his intention. It's become that, but he wanted it to uh, just be a crime thriller. And there were lots of things that he wanted to avoid in the film. Uh, and one of those things was any of his main characters wearing hats because he felt that that would be too, <laughs> it would make it too period. So uh, no one in the film wears hats other than extras and background and supporting and tertiary characters and things like that. And the other thing is that he, he overpopulated the film. So if you go back to the 1950s in LA, it was a lot sparser of a place. There were fewer cars on the road, there were a few people on the streets. But he wanted right. to sort of modernize it a little bit. So it, it, it was a period film, but it didn't feel like a film from that period. Wow. That's interesting because it's, it's such a he- location-heavy film as well. Like it's, you know, one of the, the things about it, and a few times I've been to LA is I've kind of wanted to go check out those those bars like uh, the Frolic Room and the Formosa I think is gone or at least it's been reopened so much but of even LA is gone stuff like, it's so much of LA from this film is gone but mm. a lot of structures kind of still remain and houses and stuff and you know that's the kind of nerd level I would have appreciated the film at and to go and see some random street in LA where they parked outside a house and um, Renuk, when you say I, I think, it feels it's like a, it's got a feminine energy to film how do you square that with Russell Crowe's character, who is almost like the yeah. embodiment of toxic masculinity? I know that he's, I mean, he's kind of virtuous, he's, but he's, he's... I think that's what his, his character is so great, because I, I don't know, actually, have you guys read the book before? I haven't, no. No. Um, the book is, uh, you know, as an adaptation, I think it's probably one of the best interpretations of a big, sprawling book. Like, it's a very, very, very different book to what's in the film. The, the core characters are there, some storylines are there, but there's ultimately eight storylines that got boiled down to about three. Okay. And on top of that, the characters are very, I would say, harder, colder, more macho, but also... In the book? They, yeah, they're very unsympathetic in the book, and that's kind of how Elroy writes a lot of his characters they're just you know they're shitty shitty people mm. and i think what russell crowe and curtis and curtis hansen and brian helgeland did is just kind of give a lot of depth to him about this brute who was compelled to be 
some kind of avenger yeah, for the women because of his backstory. But as we'll see later on, he does end up having some of those characteristics themselves. And I think that kind of, I hadn't seen that done so effectively before and him to kind of ground it in his performance with a lot of empathy. Um, but as a fe- feminine thing, like it's such a, it's such a masculine film, but I think it's, it is, it's the glamour is so uh, intoxicating to watch because the, you know, the, the, the looks and the hair and that kind of fifties mirage is just so, intoxicating to kind of to watch and you know you get obsessed with you know uh, movie stars like uh, Rita Hayworth and Marla Monroe it sort of it, it bounces off that same kind of obsession of like what women and their sensuality kind of looked like in the 50s and how that's kind of part of the kind of the glitter on the outside of LA and then it's got all this like nasty racist horrible undercurrent underneath it they do good job of introducing the three core characters because it's unusual in that that the story is basically dependent on the three characters working as a fractured sort of single protagonist but you know Boyd being that Avenger beating up a a wife beater then you have Kevin Spacey who you'd think almost is a movie star because he's in a Hollywood soundstage mingling with with actresses and he's talking to a tabloid reporter and he was modelled on Dean Martin as well at least a lot of that kind of the, the suave it was very much Dean Martin how he was painted yeah and he just doesn't seem like a cop and then you're going to get straight laced Ed Exley who's uh who's also I suppose wanting to prove himself but in a, a totally different way he's more of a career so he wants to live up to his dad's ideals so it's the total opposite of Russell Crowe's character who despises what his dad was and they're you know, going to have to work together what I also love, because I I rewatched uh, bits of this film today just to try and just to try and jog my memory and re familiarize myself with the film, was the kind of the the narrative framing device of having Danny DeVito's character as this narrator to the world as well. And I, when narration is done well, I love it. And uh, it's like uh, having a safe, cozy like character. <laughs> just like in Blade Runner yeah but when you, when it's done well yeah you know you have he he brings you into this world he kind of like guides you in um, to kind of like into the folds and the cracks of this world and kind of showing you introducing you to the things that you need to know and um, I think it's quite cool but in the scene there we saw between when uh, Jack Vincennes uh, and uh, Danny DeVito's character meet up, I when I was watching it, I just noticed how heavily ADR'd that the entire scene was actually done with ADR. <laughs> and uh, and yeah. I really noticed the ADR in this film. You know, it's not in every scene, but when when it, when it's there, it's very noticeable. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's cool. So this is a, a really important scene here. And it's so understated, but I mean, he's just laying down the gauntlet here to this character. Are you willing to plant evidence on a suspect you knew to be guilty yeah. in order to ensure an indictment? So already we know that the police captain is corrupt. But the way he's saying it to him, the way he's saying yeah. it to him, it's like, you know, it's it's almost like a, there's almost a nurturing kind of question. It's just like, look, I'm saving you from a hard life. Like, you know, he's kind of, he's... Yeah, but he's but also he's laying his cards out on the table. Like, he's, it's, he's been... He's setting up he's, the end. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I remember um, on a behind-the-scenes documentary, I saw that Curtis Hansen said that James Cromwell was the entirely opposite physicality of the character from the book. And yeah, that absolutely. And when he came in, this sort of string-bean, patrician-type character, 
he um he he thought well we're playing against type we've got the the, the farmer from babe but so this actually becomes a, a thing of like the book do, it, it, the, this film you don't know um in the book you know from the start who dudley smith really really is because there's a trilogy of books well there's a quartet of books but you know who dudley smith is and what his part is in the underworld at the very start of the of the, the book so mm. to write it in a way where it's concealed i think was a really interesting choice because it was to take that character and just completely change him into a different element and they did that a lot with certain elements of the book like Lynn Bracken it was actually the rape victim later on that was part of that kind of love triangle between Exley and Bud White so it wasn't so this character kind of it wasn't her character it. it wasn't her character she featured a bit but it was more uh the rape victim that Exley got involved with and Bud White it has been a while since I read it but these were sort of the main takeaways I remember mm. was they had so many sprawling elements and storylines and you know even this guy buzz meeks was a main character in in one of the other i think it was the big nowhere um so they just kind of condensed it to suit a world so essentially the only thing that kind of remains is the basic plot line but the themes and the ideas behind the book are sort of how they filtered it into their own interpretation of the story so it's it's interesting to go back and read the book and see just how much of a journey they went on especially with Dudley Smith and just being able to kind of create such a really effective villain by burying him in this twist that you were going to get to later even though you knew who he was in the book from the start yeah I mean the way it starts off you think that Russell Crowe is the villain almost because he's such a a hothead and a a brutish sort of cop but Curtis Hansen he'd just come off of doing the River Wild and then he was doing this. It's quite a it's quite a change of pace from like his earlier films with the hand that rocks the cradle and some of the comedies he did before that. So uh, the River Well was a tough shoot. That was I remember you know reading a documentary about that and uh, or whatever listening to one. And uh, yeah, um, Meryl Streep almost died on that, and they pretty much had to shoot it on location most of it uh, with the actors in the boats because the the doubles didn't work or whatever it was. So it was a very difficult shoot. So. Yeah, I suppose. I hope this was easy for him. And Kim Basinger, Kim Basinger, it is iconic. It's almost as iconic her her in that cape as um, Mina Suave in American Beauty with the rose petals. Sort of <laughs> of those ninety ninety sort of prestige films. Mm. Yeah, prestige mm. films. That's the, the word I'm looking for. What phrase I'm looking for? But yeah. Uh, you know he's uh, he's uh, Russell Crowe's um, dirty uh, partner. When we first see him, when they're parked outside that the, that that house uh, where the husband's beating up this wife, you see his partner in the back swigging from a bottle of you know a liquor bottle in one hand, but then in the other hand he's also got a bottle of coke. So he's drinking from one and he's taking a swig from the other. I think that's a detail I never spotted before. Uh, <laughs> and this is like. The intersection of the police and the Hollywood side of things, where it's you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And also what we have here is like the the, the horrible monster that still exists today, the paparazzi. This is like the early years, not the very beginning, but the early years of the paparazzi and how how what a what a tremendous succubus of a beast it actually is like, you know. Mm. But 
it's quite ironic that you have Kevin Spacey exposing uh, <laughs> nefarious sort of a Hollywood indecency. Uh, Kevin, because <laughs> I've I've heard his nickname in the 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 old Vic was Kevin Invade My Spacey. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, but you know, separating the art from the artist, yeah. he is a superb performer, and he is great in this part. He really is, yeah. I think uh, I was reading, I think, an interview with um, Curtis Hansen at one point, like, had wanted to work with Kevin Spacey, but it wasn't until he won the Oscar for Usual Suspects that Warner Brothers would even look at him. So this was kind of his first post-first post, for, post first Oscar kind of studio film, I think. And he helped, you know, um, he helped... Curtis Hansen with casting Guy Pearce and Russell Crowe who were two nobodies two Australian there was a lot of distrust about casting two Australian nobody actors in the, the part so they had to sort of bolster them with movie stars like Kim Basinger and Danny DeVito and, and Kevin Spacey wow yeah when you think about it it's like what was was Guy Pearce he was was he neighbours or was he did he come from an Austra- which Australian soap did he come from Neighbours. It was Neighbours. Yeah, I think it was Neighbours. <laughs> Wasn't he with... Um, didn't he have a, a fling with Kylie Minogue in, sh- in Neighbours, I think? Oh, my God. Yeah, I think their their characters uh, had some overlap. I never watched Neighbours. I was more of a, a home-and-away guy myself. <laughs> but uh, That's bloody Christmas. <laughs> have you ever had eggnog? No. Never. It's... It's nasty. I mean, I think it depends on how much rum you put into it, but... Uh, God, I don't like rum on its own. You know, it makes me kind of... Mm. Um, so Bloody Christmas is actually a real... What I like about this is that it does overlap with some real crimes in LA in that time. Okay. And real people like Johnny Stampanato and Lana Turner, their relationship was really a thing and he actually ended up being shot by her daughter but bloody christmas was a real act that happened in fact it was a lot worse than how it's portrayed in the film because 50 police officers got involved in the beating with over over 95 minutes and it wasn't until the latin american community lobbied that they actually got indictments but it worked out close to how it is in the film with people cops writing on other cops and things like that so it was a real event that seemed to 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 form this setting in both the book and the film as well, mm. but it, in reality, it was a lot worse than wow. how it actually wasn't that backstory with Lana Turner that it wasn't her daughter that had killed the guy; it was actually her. But they said it was the there daughter. There was a conspiracy that it was, um, so she couldn't be charged. She was covering for her mother because she wouldn't be charged. It would be a justifiable homicide, but um, but yeah, I mean, the, the story goes it was her daughter who stabbed him while she was beating up. Um, her mother or while he was beating up her mother yeah wow wow and when I was revisiting today I was like you know watching this event and I was thinking oh well this is kind of like the 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 first kind of this is going to be the thing that the whole film is going to be about I'd completely forgotten about the the murders that are going to happen in the cafe later on um and uh, because Which I forgot to a, mention when I was summing up the the sort of the plot of the the, the the movie I forgot to mention that yeah the night um, o- isn't the night, the night o- murders o- yeah. Michael Massacre. Ah, there we go. Um, and it just goes to show how much plot is in this film. Like, it's a 
plot-heavy film, but it doesn't feel it. It doesn't feel like it's burdened by the plot because, um, I don't know, you just... It feels like it's... Uh, you breeze through it. Um, and it's, it's just... And if you want to... Go on, read, read oh, oh. I think it's the, um, the... The plot compared to the book. I mean, the book even has escaped convicts on prison trains and it just all these like just chapter after chapter after plot over eight years instead of this condensed period oh, so it's okay. wow it's amazing how they've condensed so much of that that plot to this and still make it feel and run really smoothly because it's it is a book that they had even considered making into a mini series there was so much plot in it yeah, yeah. and they just got they got turned on by everybody even warner brothers passed on this that's where they ended up going to regency to get it made Warner Brothers would not... They wanted him to get rid of one or two of the three main characters and sort of base it all around one, like either Ed Exley or Bud White, and, and ditch the other guys. And they didn't want it to be a period film either. Cause, and they hated that it was a noir. Because there haven't been any successful noir films in terms of uh, studio yeah. receipts. So they were up against it. But yeah... I'm surprised it's one of. The, I'm surprised it's not. It hasn't already been revived as a limited series or a kind of or like a Fargo the way they did. They, they, they um. They tried though, didn't they? In recent years, yeah. <laughs> in 2003, they had a a, um, a pilot for a show with Kiefer Sutherland as Jack Vincennes, and it had Anna Gunn in it, and uh, a couple of other kind of you know relatively big tv names for 2003 that was that before 24 i think it might have scuppered our chances of jack bauer in the world if it had actually gone ahead <laughs> i never really took to uh 24 to be honest with you i thought it was a bit um it's like two post 9 11 yeah it was just too sort of uh, like rah, rah. yeah <laughs> we can do whatever we want <laughs> james cromwell was very proud of his irish accent and, um, I, I I wasn't impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going, ah, come here, Boyle. It's a very well. You know what? It's maybe it sounds like what a first generation. No, it's not what a first generation Irish person would sound like because they just sound second American. generation. Yeah. Second generation is that how would you describe? First so generation the, would be they've no, come first, over on the boat. Is that what? I don't know what it is. Uh, first generation American. Oh, I Christ. thought that was the kids of of immigrants. That's what I would. Yeah, the so first generation is. Yeah, the first generation is born in the country. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think. Ah, cho 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 cho. Let him be. Let him be. <laughs> um. <laughs> Somebody got an email. <laughs> oh, did that come through? Oh, okay. sunshine and shadows. That was uh, the name of the making of documentary, and I think that sums up this film quite mm-hmm. nicely. Mm-hmm. But. It's interesting because I'd forgotten there were actually three main characters, and you know, I suppose, I suppose thematically, it's about you know, isn't it about kind of like how they deal with their have each of them have their own individual kind of codes of honor, and they all those three characters kind of like stick to them, but realize that the, the their each their 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 individual codes are also flawed, and um, they have to change. To well, Curtis Hansen said good. it. The reason he gravitated towards it, aside from the language, he loved the language of the characters, was that it touched on themes that he has explored in the past, which is that it's the difference between image and the truth. And uh, I guess all these characters start out one way and they just evolve and change and you you get to see 
that Bud is not the hard bastard you think he is, that he's actually quite tender. And um, the steely and emotionless uh, uh, careerist that's Ed is um, more willing and more uh, um, facile than he appears. And I don't know what Kevin Spacey's arc would be other than I guess he finds his his yeah, his, his conscience. Conscience, yeah, he's lost it. He's the only because, one that he he doesn't know why he's a police officer. Whereas the other two guys, mm-hmm. it's one one of them is quite righteous and one of them is out for vengeance. So it's. I think he 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 suffers from his. I think basically, from in my rough kind of like recollection of it, is that he he pays a price for his lack of code. Uh, in the se- in the sense that he gets someone killed directly because of his actions, because he's too late to actually step up and do the right thing. Um, so I think maybe that's it. But I'm. I'm do they I'm very... go into uh, Rolo Tomasi in the book? No, actually, Rolo Tomasi isn't a thing in the book. Um, even the backstory of Exley's father, his father's still alive in the book. As far as I can remember, it has been almost twenty years since I've read it. Um, but his father's still alive, and Rollo Tomasi was a device that they came up with for this film. It's um, a, it, it's really economical, and it's quite great. I think it was a it's, it's a really interesting pivotal moment for these characters, at least for the characters in the film. Like as I said, the book paints them a lot more two dimensional, and they are just who they are the whole way through the book. But um, the one kind of combining factor that I think they all have is deep down they are still driven by some personal sense of themselves of like Bud is still trying to kind of avenge his mother and Exley still is well, kind of doing it for the public image as well. So there's it, it's it's all kind of inter- it's interesting how it is scraping away at a surface to get to that raw vulnerability to see <coughs> what kind of cops are. They have to be. They're they're all dirty cops. I mean, you can you can say that each mm. of them are quite uh, flawed in really significant ways. But they shouldn't be police officers. But um, they're just surrounded by real scumbags. <laughs> so they stand out in comparison. But look how beautiful that looks. I miss when films used to look like this. Dante <laughs> Yeah, that's true. An incredible cinematographer oh sorry who shot this I'd actually sorry, what do you say there Rignard? Uh Dante Spinotti I forget didn't he do Heat um, Heat yes that's it and a lot Last of, really of the Mohicans and, and he did oh, the Insider after this he did he's done a he few Marvel because movies. has he Oh, mm, he did Ant-Man and the Wasp. He's done... Um, oh, don't say that. I'll leave, leave him he be. He did X, X-Men 3, The Last Stand. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Hey, we all got to work. We do. But uh, he hired him because he was Italian and he wanted that sort of... Um, he, he wanted to photograph... Curtis Hansen wanted to photograph yeah. LA in a specific way where he felt an Italian would would <laughs> tap into that naturally. There was a photographer he was inspired by a lot called Robert Frank. Does it mean? Yeah, Robert Frank, I think, is Jack Kerouac. Uh, or he did a series of photos for Jack Kerouac called The Americans. And it's that kind of, the the cinematographer said he wanted it to look 
like he used available light and light source so there was no artificial lighting or stage lighting it had to look like you were look and feel like you were you know candidly sitting in a bar with them or sitting across the street um just have that kind of candid la city photography kind of look Mm, and it does have that and it's it's really inviting you just feel like i'd like to walk along those streets i'd love to (laughs) just go down to a cafe and have a cup of coffee but i held in you know just grab a sandwich. <laughs> but, um, he hired him. Go on. He hired him. He hired him without a lot. This is Curtis Hansen. He didn't give uh, Dante the script. He didn't want him to read it because he said he would immediately start uh, picturing the film. And he instead he gave him that flip book of images. And he said, I want yeah. you to look at this. This is what I want this film to look like. And then Dante was like, I really want to be a part of this film. Wow. Hey, I'll give you some interesting trivia about him. He shot Michael Mann's Manhunter, but not only that, he shot the remake of Manhunter, Red Dragon, for, um, what's his name? Well, no way. <laughs> yeah, I was just seeing that right now. For Brett Ratner, so he did Brett two Ratner. movies with the uh, scummy Brett Ratner. Uh, yeah, yeah, so that's it, yeah. Oh, and Note 3, he did that Howard Tower Heist thing as well, so he actually worked with Brett Ratner a few times. Oh, that is so sad. That's such mm-hmm. a decline in, in the quality of material that he's been offered. Look at this. They built this set Mm. because they wanted to have it... (coughs) Excuse me. They wanted to have it at a place which signified the pillaging of the land. (laughs) Oh, wow. So all the uh, the oil refinery sort of drilling uh, machinery behind them. And, like, if we didn't suspect the um, uh, James Cromwell's character up to now, we really should be suspecting him because he's, he's... the first time he's talking to Ed Exley, he's kind of saying, are you willing to do dirty shit? And now he's, he's, he pulls in Russell Crowe and he says, I want you to do a job kind of off the books for me. You know the type of job that you're good at. And we see him in this rundown <laughs> motel area, you know, Russell Crowe just laying into a guy tied up. And um, I think that's the, it's the best way to plant, you know, a, a really great film. If you, if you wanted to hinge on a reveal of, actually, it's this guy, you, you can't paint him as a perfect fatherly figure he has to be corrupt because your brain kind of you know rationalizes it as oh well he's the right kind of corrupt for that job and there's nothing on toward there obviously we're looking over here so it's a great distraction for people who are thinking of okay no that's how i can compute who his character is if it's too clean then you know there's something something well it's like in movies whenever i see parents interacting with children and it's so idealized and it's like uh give daddy a kiss and let me read you a story <laughs> and the kid is like so cute you just know something bad's gonna happen <laughs> they, they just don't feel real it's just yeah. the shorthand of like they're with a perfect family everything was perfect and then something goes wrong same with villains they've got to be real people yeah yeah and even if you, you wanted to be hinged on a big reveal that they are villains you have to be willing to kind of take you know the, the best kind of device in it who done it is leading the the actual kill leading your brain down the road where you think the killer did it and then stopping it short by going i know he's only this kind of bad mm. um so that your brain kind of parks hit him or her away for a bit and then you come back to it i think is the best way to do it but you have to kind of be willing to play with that element in the character and I think it's a difficult balance to get without raising suspicion 
I bet this still goes on where the police are like calling up the tabloids, like uh, um, the Inquirer, and slipping them information. Oh, well, definitely. I was, I was, because uh, I was watching the scene today, and the way he dismissively uh, gets his secretary to look up the number, and I said, "Oh my god!" Like you know, there, obviously there were no female detectives at all or police officers at that period of time but i said wouldn't it be so great if you had a story set in this era where it was from like you know the secretary's point of view and she's the one who's actually doing all the work all the detective work and just giving giving it to the these detectives who are going in just collecting the glory and um getting the medals getting the medals and she's there just going oh, rolling her eyes going oh she's the one doing all the leg work yeah this is, this is the case right here russell yeah. crow is so baby faced he looks like a child this is him coming off romper stamper I think this yeah, was this is, yeah. that's what got him the part was romper stamper yeah I've never seen met, romper stamper it's heavy but um uh when he met with Curtis Hansen, he said this guy's meant to be the biggest bastard in the LAPD I think you got the wrong guy here he was <laughs> like no I, I know you've got the uh, the fire within you and boy was he right <laughs> Wow. And he modelled his performance on Sterling Hayden in The Killing as well, which you think you can see a lot. Wow. That's cool. He wanted his costumes to be um, smaller, to be badly fitting him, and he had to uh, really convince the, the costume designer to uh, do a bad job because he wanted to almost be bursting out of his collars. Yeah. And- And even with the haircut, he kind of looks like just a grown-up kid. This kind of yeah, it's a very fifties boy boyish yeah. haircut. Yeah, that crew cut is very very much a kid's. You know, I'm looking at Curtis Hansen's filmography, and he actually well, okay, he made something like twelve, maybe sixteen films or something like that, and it's been quite a while. Like his first one was in 1972. He's dead now. Yeah. yeah, he passed. When did he pass away? 2016 or something, wasn't it? A few it was, years back. Yeah. Like he kind of he kind of went across a lot of genres, like from the hand that rocks the cradle to Eight Mile in her shoes, which is that was a rom com, pretty much, wasn't it? Um, oh God, Jesus! Yeah, I've oh, yeah, never seen miles. in her shoes. I liked it. Here we go. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did actually. Yeah. You guys are probably picking. They have so many of these cafes in LA. And this is why I love LA is kind of dingy. Um, I remember going to a, a cafe in LA and just having like um, having breakfast at two in the morning. Yeah, it was just you could do that. It's you could order pancakes and and hash browns <laughs> and coffee, coffee yeah, and all night browns. long. And you feel like you're in a movie. You feel like you're you're actually on set because everything looks like it's been in something before. <laughs> See, I saw I was watching this. I'm just watching. We're at the scene of the crime in the in the night owl, and I'm Edwin actually comes in, and there's burgers burning on the stove and there's pots burning and all I want them to do is jump over the counter and turn off turn the gas. Off. Just, just turn it off. Just turn it off, please. <laughs> <laughs> but is this, I wonder if this is a relocation. Is this a relocation? I wonder, is it a, is it yeah. a set? This it's was a relocation. A, it's a sandwich store downtown now. Um, ah. The, the, the location manager said she had a real difficult time um trying to source locations because even though a lot of the places still existed the locals and the the owners of different houses and and 
businesses would have nothing to do with them because they've been so burned up by different productions. Hmm. And wow. even though the facades were all there, everything around them was all different. So you'd have like modern buildings right next to old Art Deco buildings. So there was a lot of production design that had to go on. Wow. That's a gruesome scene he's just discovered in the bathroom. Oh my God. It's pretty gnarly. Mm-hmm. So you're 12 years of age. Where are you? You're you're at home. You're at the cinema. You're at home. Um, definitely watching this in the two-hour window before one of my parents came home. Before <laughs> hearing the the um, the car pulling up the drive, taking it quickly out of the VHS player, running it into yeah. my desk, so it never existed. I, and are you alone? Are you? Do you have no other siblings or friends in the house when you're watching? This is just you alone, is it? I had a, I had a, perhaps I still do have an older sister, yeah. Durin. So I don't know where she was. Honestly, you know, she could have been keeping that. Yeah. <laughs> she was just probably you do sitting your own right stuff. beside She's you, off. but you were like so zeroed in on the film, you can't I think, remember. Yeah. I think she was having uh, her Radiohead Rage Against the Machine thing in her room, so she was kind of exploring <laughs> other yeah. elements elsewhere no so this was you know we were we were on different journeys this is based on an actual event this This massacre i know i don't know um i suppose he would they'd cut in the uh the stock photos if it was this actress i don't forget her name but she's in Terminator 2 she's one of these character actors the more movies you see in the 90s they pop up in in everything but she was kind of like the receptionist in the Pescadero mental institution um Mm. very random fact there but just that kind of she has this very unique voice that every time I see Terminator 2 I'm like oh yeah it's Susan Leopard's mother oh wow I love yeah again great faces Kevin we we have so many times in these audio commentaries we've said yeah we just love having good faces <laughs> although Guy Pierce was complaining that he had to have his teeth capped to uh, to be in this film and he uh, found them quite cumbersome because oh. he was trying to put on an American accent and he had this oh your whole mouth has to, to change yeah <laughs> so the Bud's uh, uh, partner who was he was fired wasn't it he? he was fired for his involvement in the uh, pending indictment Christmas yeah oh pending indictment and this uh, was one of the victims in the night out and he is the girl that we saw outside mm-hmm. the, the the liquor store uh, who had obviously was recovering from nose surgery she's one of the victims as well and he'd said he had a hot date or something like that so the plot um, tekens yeah and now for me I'm kind of like going okay I'm this is like a new uh, a new experience for me because I I forget how the turns happen. So um I'm I'm concentrating. I'm concentrating and I need help. <laughs> I need guidance throughout this. So then they've got three suspects already suddenly they're black so now they have yeah, all of yeah. the police force to come after them. This is a great interrogation coming up. This is actually yeah this is one of the things when I was thinking of today it's it's since you know, this being made in '97, few years after the LA riots, few years after the OJ King beatings, yeah, yeah, it kind of it kind of encapsulated a mood and a realization that 
I think America was kind of coming to about the glory of the LAPD. And I think it's sort of a reason you keep watching it. It's just so enduring is because it's that kind of um, sickening realization that it's still fucking relevant. (laughs) And and Mm, especially in these upcoming scenes, which are every time you watch them, the, probably the most uncomfortable scenes of the whole film um it's especially when it's the power of movies when you see something you you can identify what needs to change um people might not have the will to make that change happen but they can't ignore anymore what they're not aware of so it's the one of the great powers of movies it's also worth noting at this point, I know we can't hear it, but Jerry Goldsmith's score, Jerry Goldsmith, who yes. also did Chinatown, which is a perfect companion piece for this as well, um, just has, it, it's just such a fantastic score. And with those kind of brassy notes the whole way through, it's like, I don't know, it, it, it's almost exactly kind of the same phrases he uses in Chinatown as well. But um but yeah, it's a shame we can't can't hear it. Oh, I'm hearing it. Oh, hear I just it. turned it up a little bit. So I well, I just turned up a wee bit just so I can hear it, and it is fantastic. It is. He was such. He was such. I'm a sorry, great composer. people listening at home, you are not going to get to hear it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, Jerry Goldsmith it was a legend. He really, really was. This is a famous uh, home, isn't it? Yeah. Or am I? I think you can yeah, kind of go to these things. Um, I did such a weird location hunt when I was in LA, but this one was a little bit trickier to get to. I think it's near Griffith Observatory, but it is. Did you do okay. one of those things? The uh, the sort of the seek out the the famous locations from the film. Kind of. I mean, it was sort of like get into a lift in an Uber and go to places that had been used in about fifty films, like a uh, Greystone Manor, kind of up around Beverly Hills, is used in everything from Big Lebowski to There Will Be Blood. It's like one of these oh, wow. big lofty houses and they shoot everything there from America's Next Top Model to there's a scene in Air Force One where the Russian president wakes up. It's like oh. they just use it for absolutely everything and you're walking around going like, and there's a bowling alley in the basement, like and there will be blood. But yeah, it's the Big Lebowski's house. Oh. Mm. Class. And so, so this one, you're saying this one's close to Gr- uh, Griffith uh, Observatory, uh, is I, I think so. From from, uh, I'll have to check my stocking diaries of like yeah. because it is a residence <laughs> where people do actually live. So those were ones I didn't want to be like, you know, sneaking. Over I've the walked edges. up and down this. It's so because it's so vast. Like LA is vast and sprawling, but I've walked up and down to Griffith Observatory a couple of times. Yeah, and um, you just kind of I'm enviously enviously looking at. These houses going, oh my God, who lives there? How can they afford to live here? He was making good money as a (laughs) pimp. He was, he really was. He turned (laughs) down this part because he'd worked with Curtis Hanson already on on River Wild. Wild. He was Meryl Streep's husband in that. And he offered him this role and he turned it down. And it's like, why would you do that? And Kim Basinger turned down the the part. And she said, uh, she was talking to a friend of hers who's... who's, um, either in hair or makeup and she said the costume department here for LA Confidential are making your costumes and she was like I'm not in that (laughs) and they were like well they're making your costumes Curtis Hansen was so insistent that it had to be Kim Basinger and again he went back to David Strathairn and said listen you will figure it out because he was really wary of doing this part he couldn't relate to this character yeah 
and he showed him I can't remember what film it was now but he gave him a reference point and then he nailed it he does remind me of a lot of characters from noir that I can't quite place now just kind of like sleazy yeah swarthy sort of, of uh, but he does it with a charm in a way that you're kind of like oh yeah okay fair play to him <laughs> you know but he's mm-hmm. he does give he is the epitome of a nasty sleazy pip in the in the novel but it is another example of how great the performance and the and the script give depth to an otherwise shady and sleazy character yeah yeah, because it's not stereotypical. It's more, he's more Errol Flynn Errol than Flynn. he is yeah. a, a, a pimp, you know? The pencil moustache. Yeah. Here we go. Oh, look at your own personal screen. <laughs> it's like being at my house on a Saturday night. <laughs> and that film. That's Sullivan's Travels or the Blue Angel? Oh, no, that's not the Blue Angel, is it? Which film is that? I'd have to look up on my. Uh, Thingamajig. <laughs> Thingamajig. Nine nominations and Titanic swept the board. And I, mm. Little known film that year. Yeah. <laughs> it was a really competitive year at the Oscars. Oh yeah, 97 was a great year. Pam Greer was up oh. for... Uh, Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown and... It was the year of As Good As It Gets. I think Robin Williams won that year, and Jack Nicholson won, and Helen Hunt won. And then, little old Jim Cameron won. <laughs> Where did it, like, you know, just came in and out and just, uh, out of the blue, I uh, got that one. I'm just trying to find where, how would this one performed when it opened? Give you some, um... So she was considered to be an older woman at that stage, <laughs> but... She looks comparable to Russell Crowe to me. So do you want to hear the top 10? So this film was released in around the, oh God, September, weekend of September 19th, 1997, right? Well, I give you the top 10 of the box office that weekend. Go for it. Okay. At number one of the box office was In and Out. That's, uh, did you mention oh, that? Kevin Klein one. Mm. Yeah. Number two was The Game, the David Fincher film with Michael Douglas. Mm-hmm. Number three, a new release was The Wishmaster, which I th- either Ugh, that's a... God. Is that a horror film? It is, yeah. It's a crappy horror, horror film. I've never even heard of it. And, I didn't, uh, and um, LA Confidential opened in fourth position, uh, followed by The Full Monty, which was making this a lot of money. This opened in fourth position? Yeah, yeah. That's terrible. Uh, in sixth Full position Monty. Was, ugh good god that there film was, uh, in sixth position there was uh, A Thousand Acres which is a film I don't know what that is I've never heard of that that's so weird that a <laughs> film can open and just vanish from pop culture A yeah. Thousand Acres what the hell is that yeah. that's probably I mean, some Ashley Judd um, I, it looks like Jessica Lang, and it looks like maybe um, Michelle Pfeiffer that's who it looks like it's hmm. on the on the poster okay. um, seven position G.I. Jane remember that Ridley Scott one I do. Um, oh God! Money talks. Uh, Money talks is a comedy. And is Damon Wayans looks like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, ninth position was Air Force One. Air Force One. My God, I remember seeing that in the cinema. And then uh, tenth position was Fire Down Below. 
which was Steven Seagal. That's what it was. Don't remember that either. So there we go. This opened in uh, fourth place. And what's its box office been? Oh, since that, uh, in total, it made a domestic gross of 64 million, which was very, very good back in the day. Because the budget for this was only 15 million. Yeah, 64 million back in the day was excellent. And it, but it never really went to the highest position it was at was in fourth it, it never went higher than that but obviously it had a long run because of all the Oscar um, the Academy attention that gives these films an extra life at the box office uh, so that's why it's worth getting a nomination <laughs> back then I don't think the Oscars matter anymore probably not oh back then yeah it meant a lot more but yeah do you know that the role of Bud White was also offered to Michael Madsen Really? Huh, okay. Hmm, Michael, I'm not Nelson. sure about that. But I could see, see why the, you would offer to him. The depth that I think Russell Crowe brought to it. But true... Reservoir Dogs era. I could see it being offered to Michael Madsen. Five years after that, I think he might be a bit too old. He's grizzly and surly and, you know... Yeah, but Russell Crowe owns this part. This is like one of the things that really established him. Mm-hmm, definitely. He said that after he came back to LA and started taking meetings, uh, after the film had gone to Cannes and it had stormed at Cannes and it was rare for an American film to go to Cannes and get great notices by European film critics and not sort of go there and be a laughingstock, that when he went back to LA and was taking meetings, then everybody knew about LA Confidential and everyone was talking about it. So it immediately just gave him a huge lift. He just elevates his career straight away. And he does, after this, uh, he does um, Heaven's Burning, which came out the same year. Mm. Breaking Up with Salma Hayek, which came, out, which came out the same year. Mystery Alaska. It was two years before Mystery Alaska came out. And then The Insider, followed by Gladiator. That's two big <laughs> titles that came out wow. in 2000. The Insider was, I thought The Insider was, um, was early 2000s. Oh, that was 99 imagine yeah. it was before Gladiator hmm. um, and he got the did he get he got an Oscar for Beautiful Minds then in 2001 I think I'm not 100% sure I think he did oh he got an Oscar for Gladiator did he I'm not sure I can't remember <laughs> I honestly cannot remember I used to know these things off the back of my hand and now I'm like no, no. memory is straight yeah yes welcome to my world <laughs> as well I used to be able to I used to be great at table quizzes now it's just uh now it's, it's a painful reminder of it's a, immortality. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I'm looking for the holes in my in my skull. I'm saying it's gone. It's just all gone. I think I'm getting a frog in my throat from the beer. So every now and again, it's going to be like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not going to be as bad as I recorded last week with some uh, with uh, I don't know a, a sinus infection. So I sounded horrible. People have that to look forward to because that episode's <laughs> coming out after this. Oh, great. Welcome to the future. <laughs> we'll look forward to the future, folks. You see these these streets and you think they had to dress that whole street. To make it look so, shabby. Clear the whole street. Yeah, bring in the cars. Make sure there's no helicopters, planes, no uh, kids skateboarding by. My God. But that's the thing is though, LA kind of does, like you can find streets that are kind of ready to go just take a few kind of um security signs off lawns and stuff like that like silver lake and las feliz i think is 
where they filmed a lot of these kind of scenes because they still kind of still look like the nineteen. Mm. 50s. I'm trying to think of any other film that has a that's a three hander. A cop film that's a three hander, even. Oh lordy, um, Jaws becomes a three hander, but that's at the midpoint of the film where it's Quint Hooper and and uh, to, to bring us back onto talking about Steven Spielberg. <laughs> but um, it comes home. <laughs> but I can't think of any other film off the top of my head that is. You'll have a buddy cop story but three cops mm. and one that's not like because even Jaws you could argue is oh, it's all character. it's all Brody's film yeah um Ringnock you were right about uh, uh Russell Crowe he did win he did win for Gladiator he was nominated for um The Insider and A Beautiful Mind but didn't aha uh-huh, the memory's so, uh, still working yet. yeah there you go <laughs> But you don't Jesus. win for Gladiator. You win for your build-up toward Gladiator. So he, it would have been LA Confidential would have played a part in that. The Insider would have played yeah. a part in that. It would have oh, been yeah. like, this guy has got range. Yeah, yeah. Like, what a defining role for your career as well. I mean, like, to, to be building up with these roles and doing them perfectly and then just to hit that perfect note with Gladiator because it, 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 it's so iconic that you cannot picture anybody else doing it. Absolutely. No. Absolutely. There's no. There's no one. You could. You go. Oh, if you put the rock in it, <laughs> then all of a sudden it becomes jokey and it becomes like you know, you know, WWE. Um, but he just has. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He brings. He carries the weight of those performances and those characters with him. And pain. And I would argue that it, it followed on right in for me uh, through to Master and Commander, which is another cracking Russell Crowe film that I absolutely still love to this day. It's a shame we didn't get any more sequels to that because it could have ran and ran yeah I liked watching in the behind the scenes stuff the relationship that Curtis Hansen had with Brian Hengland where <laughs> Brian Hengland wanted I'm, I'm saying his name wrong obviously Brian Hengland Hengland I never know how to, I never knew how to pronounce his name Brian H so Brian yeah. H he was quite young about 35 and uh, he really wanted to adapt this and had been optioned by, um, by, oh, by a producer whose name I can't remember because my brain is also Swiss, Swiss cheese. Uh-huh. And uh, he was told, no, Curtis Hansen has a pitch for it and he's gotten it and he's going to be writing it. And uh, Brian H's agent <laughs> said, please, please, please meet Brian. Uh, I think you'll hit it off with him. He met him. They had coffee and they did hit it off and they decided to write it together mm-hmm. and it was like, that does not happen. That that's really speaks to the magnanimous nature of Curtis Hansen where it was like, okay, kid, all right, let's do it together. You really want to do this. I really want to do it. Why don't we just team up and do it together? And you see it in all the, the sort of the, um, the behind the scenes sort of conversations that they just really enjoyed working together. And they had a really, really, really tough time uh, writing it as well Brian Halgan said that they you know so many times it was no and then they were writing for free and I think there was one one story I came across today of every time he didn't want to work and couldn't get out of bed Curtis Hansen would just literally tip over the bed and 
and, and put him on the floor <laughs> and get him to work. So it was, it seemed to kind of be this endearing relationship that, you know, only if you really, really trust the other person to, to keep pushing you to yeah. do it, you would actually do it. Um, Anybody tip me out of bed, they're getting stabbed. Yeah. Cats do it every day and just, they're lucky they're still around. Um, I'm just looking <laughs> up three handers and the first one that came up, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I think you can see. Oh, right. Years. Very good. Well, because that movie is Cameron's movie, yeah. but Ferris Bueller's the title character. But there's Sloan Cameron. as well. Um, there's it goes Harry on the, uh, the journey. There's... And there you go, there you go, there you go. True Grit, Maddie Rooster and LaBeouf. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, okay. The Amigos. <laughs> there yes. we go, Kevin. <laughs> That'll do. That'll do. That'll do. It's, it's not loading, but I think we, I think we, I think I've proved my point. This, this is such a great sequence. So tell me where we are now, because I'm I'm the one who's playing catch up here. They've they've brought in these um, suspects and they are just turning the screw on them and basically setting them up to go getting, fall for their group. He's he's tricking them into admitting to have done but it. But they are guilty and of another crime at this point. That's why mm-hmm. they're not they're not asking what this is about. So their guilt seems fairly apparent as far as we're concerned. Um but also, by the time that they got there, it seemed like the other, the other cops that beat them to it were very keen on making sure that they got shot before they got a chance to talk. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, because Exley was like, "Do not shoot them." Shows he's a bit of a dirty cop. Like he's not a, he's not the good guy we think he is, because of the tricks he's playing on them in the interrogation. He's so conniving. Yeah. He's in, in yeah. this sense, he's like, being the cop that all of these cops who doubted him before. He's now proving yeah, that I mean, he he's, can be he's, the dirtbag yeah. that 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 uh, Dudley Smith said he wasn't capable of being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the point. Is that he was such when we first meet him, he he was this uh, straight laced, couldn't be bent. But now he's shown that he can. Now he's shown he is corruptible when he wants to get when when the objective is it's horrible though. It's like it, it, he's a he's a, just as dirty as the rest of them. Yeah, but you know. And yeah, it's so compelling. Like, I think it's because you can kind of, you know, those little moments before he goes into the interrogation room, he's kind of like building himself up to do it. Like, those are the moments that we connect with him, that we kind of empathize with him. It's like, okay, he's got to do what he's got to do to get information and, you know, solve this case. We're getting to see some of the, um, the, and I suppose the Kim Basinger's character sees right through him. She sees that he is a little shiftier and dirtier than he thinks he is. Whereas, Russell Crowe is much more tender and yeah, big-hearted than you think. And that's what so, drives Exley mad, is that Exley is that bud, the thug, is actually much more of a sensitive guy than he could ever be. Mm-hmm. And that is one dynamic the book plays on a lot, in, in a much more macho way, because they that plays out with the rape victim, Inez Soto, who's we're going to see in the next scene. Um, after she's wheeled out of the hospital by Exley, Exley starts an affair with her. But I think it was, from what I can remember, it's been a really long time. Is I remember certain details like, you know, Exley's being a tender, sensitive, patient lover, while Bud is the kind of brooding, you know, hypersexual macho guy. And that was sort of the the tension that played off that that love triangle with Inez that I think they then tried to transfer to Lynn Bracken. But yeah, they've still kind of made it about 
what right. kind of man the other guy isn't or is. Cool. It's one of the best interrogation scenes though in all of the movies. I love the moment where Russell Crowe snaps and he literally snaps the back of the chair. It's like... <laughs> it's, just like it's just like, you're in for it. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes and he threatens this, okay, you've got a one in six chance. And I wonder, because mm-hmm. I didn't actually quite see it, did he actually have, like, did he take all the bullets out or was there actually one in the... two or something, didn't he? Or... Oh, but shit. He, he it, or maybe <laughs> he left one in and he clicked it, like, four times before like, oh, four, a few times he actually did leave one in <laughs> you're going, click, oh, wow. click, click. You're like, Jesus oh god fantastic. fantastic this is a really uncomfortable scene for many reasons just between yeah it's obviously they are guilty of this horrible crime it's not the crime that they're investigating mm-hmm. um yeah uh but also just this guy with no pants on just laughing to cartoons yeah. tonally it's just so odd and weird and and horrendous it's kind of mundane as well which always really always That's really it. effective just like laughing to it cartoons. makes it feel it makes it feel real yeah. it makes it feel like he's not he's not hovering over like this ominous boogeyman yeah. he's just a he's 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 in relaxation mode he's in and the poor the state of the poor yeah. woman oh my god it's a girl isn't it yeah it, um oh my god and the it's daylight the windows are open it's a nice neighborhood it's just kind of it's all yeah grim. it's just sunshine and shadows that's it just happening inside just one of these generic houses i love that in the window here you can see when he shoots him um all of the cops coming in through the window. It's just a really great example of you can see the street name and the cops coming in. And yeah. Have you read more of, of Elroy's books based on your experience with this? Definitely. The next one that I devoured from cover to, from cover, to cover was The Black Dahlia, which it, it's mm. it's also the sort of the... the how it Orson runs. Welles killed her, didn't he? Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But it's, it's kind of, kind of runs concurrently from fiction into true crime, and that was sort of the best version of it because the Black Alien was a real crime. And I, don't, I can't remember what, what was that Elroy book called. Um, it's a memoir of his mother. His mother was murdered as well, so he's kind of got this very primordial connection to LA being this kind of place of glamour and murder and serial killers. So it's that kind of fascination with the the grisly dark underside like not even just the crime and the mob crime in in LA in this film but just the the nasty gnarly freaky crimes that only really have kind of existed in LA like the black daily my dark places yeah my dark places that's it yeah an LA crime noir memoir yeah um it's a really really dark, really dark book they're not easy his mother Geneva was murdered in 1958 when he was 10 years old Um, oh my god a lot of it's like Bosch there we go this is one of our famous scenes and this is a scene that Cargill actually picked for uh, his best whodunit and it's just I suppose it's just the explosion where both their philosophies are really coming to a head here where he's we, we now sympathize completely with Russell Crowe but with Bud White and because we've seen he he's completely justified his code of honor seems like the right path and but he that wants to destroy his father yeah. 
and Ed wants to become his father. Yeah, there you go. Okay, very good, very good. Um, and you brought up, you mentioned the Black, da- Black Dahlia murder there, and um, it just uh, conjured up a memory, and it's half recall memory of an amazing thing where they feel they, one, one detective came to the, to the conclusion of who actually committed the crime. And it was like Wells. <laughs> no, it was a cold case for oh. years and years and years. And this detective um, was in, was uh, looking at it, investigating it, and he was kind of in the Midwest. I can't remember where he was in Chicago, or whatever it was. And he was researching the crime and whatnot. And when his dad was a surgeon, this is a true story now. Now I'm going to completely mess it up, but his dad was a surgeon, and he was going. His dad passed away, and he was going through some of his dad's books, and he, in hidden in one of his books, that sounds is, very familiar, is a photograph of the actual victim and not only mm. that victim but another victim an identical uh, uh, crime scene and it turned out that his father he well, I think I don't know if it's been proven but his father was a prime suspect oh. in the person who not only did the Black Dahlia but a, an almost uh, it's like an Jack the Ripper murder. they think that Jack Rip- Jack the Ripper was I think that's been debunked now, but if for a long time it was that they said it was the um, the royal surgeon oh yeah the, uh, Jack the Ripper the, the- or some member of the um, yeah, of the, the royal family who's snuck to the lower the lower edge ebbs of the of London to satisfy their dark lusts, as you wow. do. So we are now at oh Jesus, shit's gone down yeah. now. So they've gone. It's a great scene. They're tracking down more suspects. There he is. He's shooting the guy in the back or attempting yeah. to. So it's setting up. Because he's seen he's seen his partner, not his partner, but his you know work colleague killed, and that's just pushed him over the edge. And now he's oh got the God. respect of the LAPD. There you go. He's gone full dirt. Um, but also, I, one one thing I love about this film from having watched it so many times is. There are so many montage sequences in it and they're all great and they never feel excessive. But it's all because the book has a lot of long passages of time. I think it's done so well with like a really going from a dark scene like that to like K Fortune (laughs) or what is it? K Star's Wheel of Fortune into like the Hollywood part of it. It's just how they shift tonally into like, you know, glitz and glamour after a scene like that and kind of go, okay, everything's fine again. But it's. It's a great use of montage in that they do at least three times in the film. And the, the thing about the story, though, is that you could... To give the studio, even though they were completely wrong to suggest it, but you could see the logic behind them saying, focus on one of these three characters, because it's a really compelling sort of journey, depending on which one you choose. You could carry the whole movie with, with one of the three guys. It's true because I like I do tend to think when you boil things down to its simplest form and cut away things that don't need to be there, you do get to the heart of something of what you're trying to say. But I think with this, it's kind of trying to be two things at once, where you know the the text is so sprawling and so complex and, and so plot heavy. This tries to boil it down to its essential elements, but still gives it that sense of scale and time and. And characters like there's 80 speaking parts in the script. Yeah, it's insane. Wow. Um, and it's still only 
barely a third of the amount of plot that's actually in the book. Wow. He did six weeks of rehearsals with Crow and with uh, Guy Pierce, which he said he wouldn't have gotten if he had movie stars. That's true. You would have got like a week window and you would have got what they showed up with. We got two weeks on Grabbers. And it made a massive, massive difference. Because it brought everybody in line. Everybody then was aware of what the other person was going to do before they did it. And performances sort of were modulated so that people weren't coming in with a take Mm -hmm. and then you're already recording and then you've got that take basically committed. And So having rehearsals, if you can build it in, the film will benefit from it. But it's hard and it's expensive. And this is the tricky thing when you've got films, but this is something I've just learned from development of those films that go over the two million euro mark, you know, of those indies that do rely on stars. You're relying on stars to be available for a window and they're not necessarily going to bring a really great performance to that film, but you need their presence to ensure that you get the budget to make it. And that's a kind of a gamble that you take when you're going over that budget level is making sure you cast properly and they give you the time to rehearse. Is this, I assume, uh, Renuk, is this is your favourite adaptation of a James Elroy book? <laughs> it's such a shame that Brian De Palma's Black Dahlia didn't really pan out in the way you would hope, because on paper that should be everything that you want it to be, but it was it was just quite flat. Um, it's, I mean, definitely would be... I can't think of anything else, actually, I don't think about it, unless I just haven't been... Um, there's other James Elroy adaptations that I have completely missed. <clears throat> I think they've tried to adapt a few. Like, oh, there's the... Um, there's a James Woods adaptation of, I think, White Jazz, which is called Cop from 1988. Um, yes, yes, I yes. I think... And then I know that they were trying to turn the big nowhere into a film with George Clooney at one point as well. But it's kind of like he was sort of of that that kind of American author like Cormac McCarthy, where at some point everybody's trying to do the do Blood Meridian, but it just never seems to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, just rubs people up the wrong way, I think. And when you read James Elroy, mm-hmm. it is... It is it is tough to read the, the amount of not just swearing, but I think it's the hate. You know, there's there's swearing, but then there's the hate behind the swearing, and it was sort of there's so much racist language within his his text where it's not it's it's the world that he's setting it in. It's not necessarily his point of view, but at the same time, you're reading it from a very singular point of view that is a world that is. Shockingly, I don't know that you can get away with. You couldn't that get anymore. away with it today, and I think his books still kind of they they are kind of lost in a modern world where you just can't write that amount of Edward over and over and over again from that point of view, especially from the point of view of, of cops, because in his books the cops are pretty much the heroes and they're really really bad people, whereas this mm-hmm. adaptation does treat them like bad people. The institution is racist, but they're not racist, which is kind of a bit of a cop out because the book 
they are 100% utterly nasty racist bastards but yeah. I think in order for him to tell a story about how good intentions can be corrupted to the point where there's no difference there's a very thin veneer between uh, heroism <laughs> and and villain villainry then I think you do need to have characters with some sense yeah. of a moral compass that then get thrown way off whack because if it was just nihilistic and you were seeing <laughs> yeah I, I just that's... you just end up thinking god burn it all down which maybe yeah. would have I mean, been that's kind of what you take away when you read the, his books is it's just a big slew of violence and death and racism and everything's fucked whereas like you do kind of but I suppose when you've when you've had your mother murdered at ten, the world has got to feel like a really hateful place, an unfair place. But we're talking about right, talking about this film. Another I think, Australian. I think this film that uh, does a, a lovely balancing act, and between that dark and the lightness, and I think it is due to the characters like. Danny DeVito's character and Vincent's character that they these those characters are the kind of like stabilizing tonal uh, elements in this film to kind of like bring us tip us back from the the intensity of Russell Crowe's character and this you know ends this straight laced moral you know supposedly moral morally north point is um, Edwin Exley and I think there's a lovely balance and tone where there's there is darkness but there's also there's nice alleviation mm-hmm. there's night there's lovely light moments in there as well there's few but but they are they do well, exist the Lana Turner moment is a great <laughs> bit of comic relief mm-hmm. right at the, the the right spot but um but yeah I think you're right Kevin kind of you just couldn't adapt this film with them being the way they are in the book because this ha- ultimately has to be a take on it and the take is the light and the shadows and even Elroy has spoken about you know his initial concerns about the film and the book but he ultimately approves of it because it's still boils down to this same ideas and themes that are there in the book but it is still the filmmakers take on what story they want to they wanted to to share from that world and here you see Kevin Spacey being the devil that is sending a kid into a situation that he's not prepared for and he's not comfortable with and he's giving him such a bad steer and he knows that what he's doing is fucking wrong but it serves it's a very weird foreshadow for Kevin Spacey as well it really is there's so much sexual sort Mm. of subtext going on there where but you know that could just be us projecting onto it, but uh, oh god, life oh. imitates art. Got hit in the face with a tail, <laughs> but you got this wide eyed kid that's like uh, scared and he's like, You got nothing to be afraid of. He knows that no, you are innocent and you need to hold on to that innocence, but now he's gonna send the lamb off to slaughter. Although he doesn't expect him to, to get, get killed, he just thinks he's going to get have killed. sex with the DA <laughs> and for mm. his own personal gain, essentially. And um, mm. but yeah, even the crisis of conscience—it's interesting because he he has that crisis of conscience before he shows up at the motel to discover he's dead. So it's even worse how that compounds that sense of of of, of growth for him 
uh, of guilt because mm-hmm. he's yes. there in the bar. The fabulous Frolic Room. He plays such brilliant, disgusting, sleazy, slimy, charismatic, devilish characters that I don't think there's anyone else that's filled his shoes. That writes that line between having a glint in the eye that is just a touch more sinister than you're comfortable with. He was so good at villains. Ah, the Frolic Room. Still there on Hollywood Boulevard. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's quite dingy on the inside. Like it is, it is a weird old Hollywood bar. If you go to the New Beverly, uh, you know, Qu- Quentin Tarantino owns it now. That's true. It's, um, it's also very dingy. It almost feels like a porno theater. But, you know, he loves that aesthetic. <laughs> Should put it in my face. Talking to okay. This is the thing with American money. All of it looks the same, and I don't understand why they don't mix it up a bit. <laughs> Make it a different color. Just yeah. a different color, different yeah. size. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you can change things. Things can be changed. Like your constitution. No, you can't. <laughs> and that motel is still. America is very much uh, built upon tradition. A very, it's a very conservative country. And this motel is still there on, on Hollywood Boulevard, I think. Wow, no way. Oh my god. I've so this has now given me a whole bunch of things whenever uh, I could possibly ever be in LA again to, to, to go and visit. I'm delighted. Because actually, I'm, you, you were kind of cause so big, it's Look quite hard. TV. It's so cool. Oh, and this is the poor kid. Just the look in his face as well. It's it's good dead acting. Do you think he was based? Well, obviously not because this does not what happened with Tab Hunter, but there was a lot of um, rent boys in LA that were knocking around back then. I think there were a few murders in, involving young men, or at least, I can't remember, was it, who was that, was there a musician who was apparently killed by somebody? And it's sort of, um, even Greystone Mansion that I mentioned earlier seemed to have had this um, this reported crime of apparent suicide, but it was, it was mythologized as the butler killing his lover, the master of the house, and that they still still mm. answer. Well. See, I found LA to be um, a very hollow place, and not hollow in that people were superficial. Oh, it's, it's filled with death. Yeah, it just feels like yeah. a place that is just dripping with disappointment and um, just the, the worst lost kind dreams of, of lost dream. It's that kind of thing that makes Mulholland Drive so perfect. It's that proximity of dreams and mm. death. And the loss of yeah. everything and despair. And I think those, what I was saying earlier, LA just being one of these places that you walk around and, you know, death is kind of everywhere um, historically. And It just feels like a mausoleum. It doesn't feel like a thriving, yeah. vibrant city, like just bursting with so much going on and newness. And, and it just feels very... But it's got this exterior of 
glamour and dreams and everything that you could yeah. want it to be. And it was one place if you yeah. do ever um, go back to LA, I don't, I wouldn't recommend it, but it is a site to. Um, it's, a, it's definitely it's a place I w- walked in for a few minutes and had to leave. It's the Death Museum in LA, and they have well. <laughs> the Death Car um, that Jane Mansfield was in when she was almost. Uh, oh my god! Scalped, but um, and it does have some pretty gnarly autopsy photos, so that's worth knowing going in. But it has all these like, oh it's gosh. got this morbid fascination of all these celebrities that died in horrible circumstances, and they've got all this memorabilia everywhere. And it's one creepy guy who's got a monkey. There's a weird thing in America where they will just release nine one one calls. So if you are a celebrity and you make a nine one one call, like I just heard. Like Sandra, the fucking Phoenix one. I, I've never heard that one, but I just heard Sandra Bullock's mm-hmm. one, where she calls a nine one one dispatcher and says, "There's a man in my house and I'm hiding in the closet." Oh, jeez! And uh, and he is basically guiding her to, to what to do and what where to stay and not to, not to leave the room. So and the police so are coming and all that kind of stuff and telling her, "Oh, he's in custody," and. Is this recently, Kevin? About or five or six like... or seven, or maybe ten years ago. But it was just oh, okay. recently released. But everything in America with a nine one one call is public domain. Yeah. So as soon as you call those people, if a reporter asks for the nine one one tapes, they just get it. So yes. if you're a celebrity, you do not want to be the person that makes that phone call. Well, that's how I heard the um, the nine one one call. Like we all heard the rust. For the Rust tune, oh, you were the, yeah, the, the AD or the line producer. You were talking about LA, and yeah, that's the the vibe. I guess I just the, the my the feeling I get I recall most about LA is that sense of walking down streets and there's no one there. That emptiness, these big wide streets. And yeah, there's big a white streets. I wouldn't call her that. Did I say streets? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but you know that sense of she's sprawl, a national treasure. But <laughs> the sense of sprawl. Well, she was there too. Like she was, she was the only person on the street. It was like street. Will you get off the streets? For God's sake. Um, but yeah, there's 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 a sense of disappointment, or you know, I don't know. It's. It's not a place that you know that I uh, that I felt. Oh, I I want to live yeah. here, no. even though with the weather the weather was beautiful. But I definitely did not there was want most, to live was, there. Before uh, you joined earlier, I was talk, saying to Kevin the last time I was in LA was in Silver Lake in 2018 in July. That's a nice spot. Um, it's beautiful spot, and when you're there, you're you know you do project these fantasies of like yeah yeah I'm going to live here and I'm going to go to my <laughs> yoga studio early in the morning with spin class go to Trader Joe's in the morning, pick up my avocados, make guacamole for breakfast, you know, just live your perfect LA sunshine life. But that day after I got my avocados and Trader Joe's and Silver Lake. Um, oh, this is a story. Tell Will this story. Yeah. Yes, and later that day, <laughs> that same Trader Joe's in Silver Lake um, was the scene of a, of a hostage situation and a shooting by police. Uh, this guy was Jesus. had shot his mother and his wife and was in pursuit by the police. He ended up in the Trader Joe's in Silver Lake, barricaded himself in, took everybody hostage, and then the police just opened fire, open fire into that Trader Joe's. Um, 
you know, oh my, the, my head goes immediately to that lovely stand of avocados that I was living my thing earlier oh that day. And um, and they killed a manager oh and wounded a pile of other people. But I think it was afterwards, there was shock, especially from people who lived in the area. But it was sort of the kind of like, oh yeah, um, you know. Hollywood, this stuff kind of happens. And I even visited a friend in of Melrose, and there was a you know there was a police cordon down the road, and I was like, oh yeah, my neighbor got shot. Anyway, how was your day? And it was a sort of like this kind of <laughs> laissez-faire oh attitude. To Sounds like West Cork. Death, and you know, <laughs> it, it's not it's not this kind of stop all the lights and pay attention to it kind of death. It's just like yeah. casual death and that kind of put the nail in the coffin for me wanting to live there because it was just it just felt oppressive that kind of ease at which you can go about your day and because I'd been in that Trader Joe's earlier that day I just sort of felt right that was that feels a bit weird and their dream is is over getting used to that just as a damning indictment on a society that's failing yeah I think so and just Constant Jesus. violence, constant horrendous murders and, and homicides. It just, you know, I, I think it's what makes this film so compelling is it just has this, you know, gnarly bodies under the houses and smut and shootings and mob. But it's also got this like, yeah, it's also got the dream. And, and Curtis Hansen is an Angelino. So, you know, he's one of the reasons he really wanted to make this film mm. was he wanted to pull back the curtain and say that it's all an illusion and his uncle the city of angels mm. is built on a lot of death and his uncle apparently um provided costumes and clothes i'm not sure in what capacity this is like a bit trivial find out but um for natalie wood and marla monroe so he would have met marla monroe and natalie wood as a kid wow oh my god and of course natalie wood was <clears throat> murdered allegedly allegedly. Well, allegedly allegedly that's that's a truly shocking shocking story and uh yeah it oh jesus christ russell crowe has crawled underneath the 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 building uh is it the mother of He's the uh, the gutter and there's a body under the building and who is, it? is the question because i don't He's know the guy that was at the car um at the start of the film Oh yes, he said he was a former police. He was a police officer. He was a cop. They're ripping into the couch. Um, yeah, he was a former cop. Leland, Leland Meeks. And it, I thought it was Buzz Meeks. Leland Buzz. Well, Leland Buzz is probably his his nickname. He called him Buzz. Was it a rat? Yeah, oh, pretty God. big one. Boom, boom. Great dialogue. Jesus Christ. This cat is turning into a bit of an asshole, so... (laughs) Turning? I think it's it's Uh, a real potluck if you get a good cat. (laughs) Some cats can be so gentle and loving and full of personality, and other cats can just be, like, psychos. In in fairness, he's kind of... You know, quite sweet when he wants to be, but it's 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 usually when he wants to when be. Wants to be yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're on Cooper time. You're on. A, you're in an abusive relationship. They were. Uh, that's what cat being. That's what cat ownership is. It's just Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> Clean up my shit. Feed me. Don't you dare touch me. 
that's we we've we've a guy it's a bit like that who is like when i start when i start recording he comes to the door and is just crying oh, and crying he just wants me. to get in the room with me i never hear him yeah oh you I, thank god yeah he never shows up on the actual recording but he uh, does come up and he's meowing he's done, away. uh prior to the recording i've had to kind of barricade myself into we don't have a door in the sitting room but if there was he'd be at the door where my partner is sleeping trying to get in because he's obsessed with this is so off topic, but um, Renix just moved to Berlin from uh, Ireland. How did you get the cats into the country? Was uh-huh. it a bit of an ordeal? It wasn't actually in the end. We were thinking of doing the whole shipping them over. You can get like pet hunters. FedEx. You can kind of FedEx your cats. You can just give them to like a, a wrap them in bubble wrap. handler. And, um, <laughs> but the ultimately didn't want to put them underneath. We were thinking about ferrying them over, but we could take them on KLM underneath the seat. Um, mm, like wow. your hand luggage. I think it's so fucking cruel to put animals into the Couldn't cargo do it. of a plane. It's just how loud it is. It'd just be like, oh no. And you can't sedate them either if you wanted to. You couldn't because they, they need to be alert. You think of how, well, I think of how stressed my dog gets during fireworks. Oh, yeah. To put the dog... Next to an en- engine. Yeah screaming yeah. the dog would just shit itself to death i'm not i'm laughing but it, it is it is true it is just it, it it really stressed me out before moving trying to figure out because we we didn't love these fuckers and we didn't want them to get traumatized but we were able to give them a light sedative put them under put them in a little bag then put the little bag in front uh in the seat in front but so every now and again like obviously people on the plane had no idea we had cats until they started crying see i I personally think that everybody Uh when the everybody when they're uh, traveling should be on a light sedative i think so too i was tempted to take one it was a very big day um two flights via amsterdam with two cats um luckily no accidents well done. Well done for pulling that off. Because I would be stressed to the max. Bad. It was pretty stressful. The whole emigration thing was tough going. Yeah. But uh, the uh, the rental rights are definitely worth it. You're no longer under the clutches of Fina Fall and Fina Gale, so fair play. I'm under the clutches of uh, Host Merkel, uh, Social Democrat, um, Social Democratic Progressive, I can't remember, SDP. <laughs> They're trying to figure it out at the minute. Who, who knows who's in power yet? All I know is you'll be better off. They are. They do have the new right wing party, which is quite popular here. But, um, yeah, they're a bit scary. Oh God, not in Germany, please. No, they're you just copying the same rhetoric as the Nazis, even just word for word, because that's the message they're trying to send, and it's it's pretty scary. Jesus. They're the fifth most popular party in Parliament. They're in Parliament? They're in Parliament, the uh, AFD. Um, they just have signs everywhere that are, you know, that just, they're Nazis just replaced Jews in the 1940s with, my God. Um, or 1930s with Muslims. And everything is, Muslims. Everything is um, against the imported wave of Muslim homophobia. And it's just fear mongering. And they're all part of the anti vax movement here, which is quite huge. It, uh, 30% of the population aren't vaccinated, if not 35, 40%. Wow. This, that's all social media. Social media is such a pox. Yeah. It is totally 
brainwash people. Facebook. It's it's because Facebook haven't been able to monitor anything that's not English language. And here, there's a lot more autonomy about you know, or a lot more focus on bodily autonomy and things like that. So you have very woke uh, young people who would otherwise be quite socialist and smart and open just I'm just not going to take it right now and you're just kind of it's just amazing because it's so bizarre because their reasons for not taking it are all bullshit bullshit Mm -hmm. it's like you how can you reconcile the two trains of thought it's so bizarre it's it's kind of weird because it's, it's just social media in berlin you do notice this duality of you know i'm not i'm gonna be i'm gonna be vegan and i'm gonna have organic and ethic you know ethical based organic food and still go out at the weekend and snort class a drugs it's it's kind of you know <laughs> it's which has devastated thousands and thousands and thousands of families and communities yeah. and you are just basically <laughs> partaking in different like oh drugs don't blood diamonds or or the slave trade it's you know you won't go in and buy your six pound suit or whatever (laughs) because it's um made by children and sweatshop but you will go and snort 50 quids worth of coke Mm -hmm. where a farmer has watched his daughter get her head chainsawed off and there's these new drugs as well there's one called g i don't know a lot about it but apparently not many people do because a lot of people are dying from it because it's not, they don't realize how long it takes to break down the system. And an Irish girl, she must have, I think she was only 21, died at the end of my street a few months ago when she was over. Um, she just OD'd in a, in a bathroom stand. And it was, it seems to be taking, there's a lot of panic over drugs right now because there's a lot of synthetic drugs and every, the clubs are opening again. So people are, uh, you never know what you're getting. Um, I've never really been into it for that reason alone. It's kind of like, I just would like to know I'm not going to die. Or have a panic attack. Or <laughs> yeah. Anytime I've... I've not done a lot of drugs, but anytime I have done uh, the main four, it, it doesn't really have the same effect on me that people no. report it to having. That's and the then opposite. I get told, you just didn't get... You just didn't get a good... <laughs> batch or it's not what it used to be oh you're just the wrong person to take it yeah and i'm Mm. like Like well listen (laughs) i've tried it six times and it does nothing for me so i'm just gonna leave it at that yeah (laughs) just gives me a bad night that's what it ends up doing this This is that this is the actual the funny scene johnny stampanato I just I love how it starts with Exley going. I'm going to brace Stampinato. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you are absolutely. Um, oh, who's that actress? Um, is that is, was she from Twin Peaks? No, no, I don't. I think it, it's it's an unknown actress. I remember looking it up and being like, oh. she looks like Sherilyn Fenn. She does. Um, that Long Turner had a really rough ride. Um, she was forced to have an abortion by studio she was in and because it was an emergency that they needed to have an abortion straight away they forced it on her without anesthetic in her hotel room oh some, a, what? like horrendous stories of what they did to actresses oh um, my all the forced God. abortions like, like betty davis also had a forced abortion 
Um, I think, you know, people were obviously fired for having a That's like rape. There's like the, the, the one thing I am, you know, that we haven't really seen done is you've got all this, these beautiful picture perfect biopics of Marilyn Monroe. And I think this is what is going to make Blonde really interesting is, you know, Marilyn Monroe was raped while she had her period and then he fired her or, However, the what's this? There's a film called Blonde. Blonde yeah. is um, Andrew yeah, Dominic. Uh, oh, the assassination okay. of Jesse James. He's been trying to get this. Um, I see it's still him. I mean, I, I do correct me if I'm wrong, anybody, because I, I the last I checked, it was his <laughs> biopic, his long-awaited follow-up to Killing Them Softly, um, book by Joyce Carol Oates about Marilyn Monroe. With Anna de Armas, um, is that saying that right? But uh, mm. it's um, yeah, yeah. it's uh, during the summer, I think. Like a bit of detail came out that the studio saw a cut of it, and it had you know period sex and rape and abuse and nudity and um, all of the things that Marilyn Monroe, in her point of view um, and her experience, endured at the hands of the studio when she was coming up as a as an ingenue. Um, Which studio is it? Fuck, I have no idea. Um, presumably MGM, but um, I don't know too much about it other than these these small little facts. But I just um, the one thing that has always stuck with my mind is some of these stories and legends and myths of what these beautiful women had to endure at the hands of studios and men and Lana Turner, and you know, it, it's indicative of the darkness in this film um but we just never see it even in modern biopics we always see kind of nice versions of marla monroe's depression and uh, anxiety and maybe yeah, put marlin because they they always want it to be affirming it can't be sort of, they don't want mm-hmm. to they don't want to be undignified but if you get really messy and you show what somebody has overcome mm-hmm. and still achieved that is a more heroic I think so, yeah. story than uh, softening it or denying reality. But you've got an image that is so prolific like Marilyn Monroe and to tell her story from her point of view. Even Audrey Hepburn has, has a pretty tough story coming up with coming up through uh, Hollywood with Sabrina and Betty Davis, Judy Croft, Judy, Joan Crawford did porn. Judy Garland's story of course is really horrible and Clark Gable apparently yeah raped uh, his co-star Loretta Young. She had a child out of wedlock and then she adopted the child to make it seem Jesus. like she didn't have the child when she went away for her. But There's all these horrendous scandals about... Um, well, they were commodities. So the minute that you were in... A, 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 their body wasn't theirs anymore. Yeah, you were you were owned. You were like a, a, a product of the studio. They could do what they wanted with you and... They wanted to make their studio heads and their executives and their, you know, big wigs and their leading men happy to stay with them. We'll get you to work with this actress. And, and just the, the way they endured. I mean, Natalie Wood talked about coming out of a, a, a sit-down meeting. Well, who was it? It was somebody else had reported it back that Natalie Wood had... Um, a casting meeting yeah. 
with Kirk Douglas in oh, Upper Town. That was horrible, yeah. Mm-hmm. And apparently, a character. Yeah, I mean Kirk Douglas is is dead now, mm-hmm. so you you don't really need to worry about <laughs> about slandering him. But apparently, he raped Natalie Wood, and then Jesus, you know, she was quite a heavy drinker after that because. You've been yeah. through some traumatic shit. And it's more the the. It's not necessarily the act itself. It's everything after. It's the denial of. It's the disrespect, disrespect and, and the, the dehumanization, and the trying to kind of contain you as the problem to make sure that you don't become a problem for this image and that your image yeah, is yeah. contained. And mm-hmm. that pressure to live under must have been horrendous. And, you know, <laughs> you don't see that kind of. We we say it a lot on this podcast. Films are fun. <laughs> But the filmmaking business yeah. <laughs> can be very it's ugly. And that's why I love listening to um, just a couple of podcasts. There's uh, the You Must Remember This podcast, oh, yeah. which I think is excellent at kind of covering all of that era Join and getting us, into the nitty gritty. Won't you? Yeah. <laughs> but I also love um, the uh, the secret history of Hollywood or history yeah it's the secret history of Hollywood or his secret history of movies and it's epic and it's uh, who does that wonderful and it's oh lordy it's he almost dramatizes mm-hmm. it this is the this is the mad thing it's almost like you know oh god what's his name oh I can't remember his name right now I'm sorry but it is fantastic I'm listening to uh, the plot thickens which is apt for this movie and uh, they're covering Lucille Ball's rise yeah. to uh, riches uh, and it's great it's really really good this scene is um, I love the scene because it plays as uh, Jackson We're, Sends is trusting the captain with the information he's got ho- kind of going in hoping the captain sparks something it's and it's when he says mm-hmm. like you were the supervising officer and I hoped you kind of remembered something and that that he doesn't realise is him signing his death warrant which is great because he's just mm. the one mm. slight step behind the information that he has to know what's going on and he was about to find yeah. out when boom we're about to see Kevin Spacey bite it which he doesn't he does not die this way in the book how he, does he die? killed by an escaping oh, really? con when a, um, when a prison train crashes if I remember correctly and Completely also random. doesn't doesn't um I love the way that he offers him the, the drink. It's like the uh oh. it's like the kiss on the cheek before you get killed mm. in the Godfather. But uh So when Kevin Spacey says to the captain mm-hmm. uh Rolo Tomasi mm-hmm. Do you think that he's planting that seed in his head so that he will not that he will have to ask about that and therefore it will expose him as being corrupt. It's a pretty big leap to assume that, but I think you could assume that he's he knows that him and Exley are in, in league together. So to give this parting clue, he wouldn't be able to help himself ask what that was about. Mm. Um, they said that uh, big leap, this was though. one of those great death moments in that you saw the light go out of a, a, his eyes yeah I, how he acted yeah, that, that was really good acting Jesus just the kind of the smile on the face drop it's the 
the uh, it's a small bit of acting where your face has to be up here doing something and then it's like just yeah sets in and that character survives to the, to the next book doesn't he the captain dudley yeah he's in um he actually dies of old age in a retirement home Oh, I oh, thought wow. I thought I read that he died <laughs> at the hands of a serial killer. Orson Welles. <laughs> that was there is a serial killer in the book in L.A. Confidential as well. On top of it, the, this whole plot. Um, somebody else dies, I think. <laughs> well, it has like it has been twenty years since I read it. Um, Look, there, see, it's registering on his face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He now knows. Yeah. The nose flaring. Good nose flaring in this. But you know, <laughs> actors knowing they're playing to their close-ups. They really are playing. <laughs> Guy Pierce said that Curtis Hansen kept giving them the instruction, we're on your face tight, <laughs> don't do anything. <laughs> do nothing. That's great advice. Don't emote. Yeah. Um, stop acting it is amazing when you do get a, a camera up in an actor's face that they give you everything and it you can be so you know aware of other things going on that you forget to kind of go <laughs> stop stop um, Think. but doing nothing is the <laughs> best direction when you are up close because of course yeah. actors want to give you everything and they can't see what they're giving so when it's still it's also consistent and you can cut into it so it's not a million different there you go. That's the key thing. You've got something to use to color a, a look. Because a look is a, a singular look is yeah. better than trying to trying to consciously do lots of different things. Um, Can I ask you, Renuk, mm-hmm. when you move from being a script editor mm-hmm. and being a development exec into directing short films, what was the big change you noticed, or what was the big gear change you had to make? within yourself I think I kind of they were kind of concurrent as I did films uh in college uh in 2000 and you know up to 2009 2010 um and you know had made a short film before you know it was sort of like developing to pay the bills Mm -hmm. and wanting to go off and develop all these scripts over there so you know I was lucky enough to be able to squeeze in a couple of shorts while I was uh, development exec and I don't know it, it definitely was interesting to let um, work and filmmakers that I'd worked with in Samson um, their influence kind of rub off on on your vision because I think when you're working with um, with lots of really great writers and directors they do tend to have singular visions and it does tend to make you be quite singular about what you want to say with your work, what you and um, how you uh, verbalize what you want from it, and how you get that across. Yeah, communication is probably which is what development is about. Things. Is even if your your writer can't quite find the words, it's you have to help them articulate what they want their vision to be, or at least help them recognize what that vision is and find a path towards it so it was definitely it definitely felt not too much of a leap but I do love directing from a point of view of um of just kind of it's more comfortable and it's definitely the side of the table I prefer to be on where 
mm-hmm. you're in charge of all of these things and it's your mad world but you've somehow you get to safeguard the script so i guess it yeah. puts you in a position of of being a champion for the audience and I seeing so, yeah. it through and it, it is. rather than relinquishing control which is what you have to do when you're in any other position other than the actual director that's true and i i, I would find it difficult to do that as a as as a writer only like it's definitely something i would do but i think that kind of ultimate control and now the way that i write is a lot more visual and based on how i would wrangle it as a director um Mm. which does kind of make the prospect of writing for someone else difficult but then again i think that's the idea comes down to is trust you have to find a director and a collaborator, even if I'm directing with someone else, you know, I think you want to share a vision and be able to articulate exactly the same goal with the same film, but also trust each other and know that you've got this boundary, these boundaries between each other, but you can you can push each other's instincts and 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 work those out. Yeah, but it that you know that regardless of where you end up, that one person is going to make the, the final call. So you can have all that sort of mm-hmm. back and forth and debate and what have you, but it is going to come down to um, yeah. what one person thinks. Uh, I like being the point, the sort of the uh, the uh, the wingman. It's a sort of a position for me where I can influence things without having to um, to follow through with the really stressful part of actually making it. <laughs> I remember when I was yeah. shooting. I was shooting my student films. Uh, we did like three of them. We shot them on Super 16 at the time. Yeah, we shot a few on 16 as well. You've only got limited rolls of film, limited days, limited time. <laughs> and I was having stress dreams <laughs> where the, the the entirety of the dream was just people calling my name <laughs> and me answering, but nobody hearing me answer. That's pretty much <laughs> what directing <laughs> Kevin, 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 Kevin. And I'm just going, what, 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 what? And no one hearing me. And I was just going round and round in circles. And yeah, that was, but it was true to what the experience was like, which is that everybody was coming to me with questions about everything all the time. You have to give a, you have to (laughs) to give an answer. I think someone described it as you have, you have to make thousands of decisions a day as a director and you can't you have no time to think about what a decision is you have to go write the red one do that uh, and each one of them accumulate into what the final product is and, and how terrifyingly that process especially at the short film we just did was it was quite low budget it was, it was 20k for what we wanted to achieve with it we had a live um, ensemble in it and a big house and ghost and stunts and Four day shoot and thirty scenes, um, and each day finished on time. You did thirty scenes in four days. Thirty scenes. Oh my god! And we dropped four scenes. My god! (laughs) So I'm glad we we didn't uh, go through with those. Don't you love it when you uh, look back at the script and think, "Why did we actually write this? (laughs) (laughs) We never actually were going to shoot it." But that's the thing. It's like it was just a few days before the film, and one of the 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 lovely guilty pleasures I have. Ah, that is sorry to interrupt. He's just basically. He's no broken his code of becoming oh, yeah, like his that's dad. A, that's a, yeah, that's a really tough scene. Um, Battered. That's what 
I've been I've been quiet for a while because I have genuinely <laughs> been watching the film. I've been reading the subtitles and, and following because I I forget how this plays out, and uh, I'd forgotten that Danny DeVito comes to a, oh, such a bad. Yeah, yeah. It's Sorry, when we on. see the other side of Dudley Smith, and it's like, oh right, he he's not messing. Mm-hmm. And he got the, the pictures as well. It's just so ugly. Are you developing um, yeah. any feature? Uh, material at the moment or are you still sort of building up a head of steam or where's your head at in terms of what you're I have a crime feature that has sort of been the feature that is either going to just never get made and it's going to drive me nuts or it'll get made or it'll be like the the one that is the dream debut feature that displays everything that you're about and what you want to say as a filmmaker or it could just be you know, a pile of mad ranting yeah. kind of thing. Well, just use that energy. Use the energy. I think, that yeah, if, that's, if it's, it, it's vulnerable energy, but I think that's the the right way to do it is you have to try and channel it into a story and still listen to notes. But then when, you know, with the few times you might have sent it in for funding and it comes back with, I don't know what it's about. I think it's a bit offensive. You know, you kind of, it's that personal thing that comes with it because it's such a, you know, it means a lot to you, but that's the name of the game it's an extension of you and so it's so hard to divorce yourself it's why I, I think people need to cut writers a little bit of slack because a writer is living with the material a lot longer than anyone else ever will this was one of the hard, hard things I learned in development was you know you've got a a system and a way of management creative management that is you know based on a civil service model and you know you're sort of talking about <coughs> emotional living things like scripts and people and mm. uh, the, even the the fake real people that we're making to put in these scripts mm. it's all such an emotional business and I, I we, we tend to kind of the framework that a lot of people tend to form around it is quite business centric and civil servicey and hierarchical and it's not a system that I think works from my point of view of working in development for years I think you know the best um, approach has always been um, working with someone, not they're working for you or, you know, non-hierarchical and um, collaborative and positive and open and emotional and crying in the bathroom and all of those things. It's a messy, messy business. And I think it has to be that. You need writers to have uh, a thick skin, but to have... Um, access to all of the emotions yeah. possible just under the surface so you're dealing with very emotional oh. fragile vulnerable people who are putting up this uh, tough exterior in order to just survive the process the and process the, is so punishing the process ends up should in, because because writers are people and they need to be able to protect themselves from the onslaught of you know, uh, rejection and pain and, you know, like you know, bullying and and disappointment and, and let's face it, sometimes quite abusive behaviours. You know, it's to protect that, they end up having to shut down that part of them that is given permission to go to those places to make really great work. And I think mm-hmm. it's the role of a development exec and producers and that framework to to put a structure absolutely into to to make 
you know, to, to get the film where it needs to go, uh, but to create a safe place for that to happen and to, to, to give somebody that space to explore. I do think it's, um, and th- you know, this is one of the reasons I don't really, I, I love script editing, but I don't love enforcing um, three-act structure or eight-sequence approach or, you know, ensuring people that they have to follow um, one set of rules or it's not going to work. I think there's, uh, you need to give people a wide breadth of space to explore what they have to explore yeah. instead of supplanting your idea of what you think is going to save the script on it, which I think is a big flaw with script editing culture in general is, you know, we have these experts who think they know how to solve it and you have to listen to the expert or, you know, you're going to get fired. And It's because the easiest thing to understand mm-hmm. is, is structure. Yeah, it's like an equation. Uh, some script editors get very sort of uh, steadfast about adhering to a certain structure that they know categorically works and they write they, they they can be right but sometimes <laughs> it work, it's not yeah. always the right it's it can't approach. be the singular only formula and even still even when even when they let go of some of those rules there's still things that you know i think taste and a lack of a lack of love in cinema and how cinema develops and how stories develop even generationally you know mm-hmm. Stories are constantly going to develop past what made a really great Hollywood movie in the 70s to what's going to make a really totally, great totally. indie film today for a young audience. Like, there's, you can't give the same formula that made Tootsie a good film to a film today with the, that same material. You have to be no. able to organically yeah. change it. But in order to do that, you need to empower writers to experiment with that to find their voice to do it and that takes time and in an indie structure it's easier to to preset with all these things the only thing you need to stick to as a writer is never be boring just keep it always entertaining interesting illuminating fascinating and it works just be good (laughs) just be good the best script editors and development execs I've ever worked with have been so emotionally invested in a project that I've worked on that if it doesn't go ahead or it it gets um, nixed in some capacity, they are almost more broken yeah. up about it than I am. Yeah. And I remember talking to one development exec and I'm like, Jesus, listen, this is what I expected. I've gone through this at least 20 times. Yeah. yeah. But they're like, no, but this is different and this is so good. And I'm like... Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and it's... You end up commiserating. Those things have a lot them. to do with just things that are beyond your control. Like, you know that you can, as a development exec and with a writer or a, a team of creatives, you can carry a film based on your deeply rooted love of film um, towards the audience that you know is there because you are that audience and you're following those ideals. But ultimately it comes down to how somebody reads it and how they're going to interpret it in terms of and how their day was yeah and how their day was if they're going to read it and and consider it but also they're going to consider it in the same light that you were because they don't have that connection to the film and the audience that you have and that can be really frustrating of course and we're just seeing the death of david strathairn's character and 
God, of all the places that we have gone to, all the locations, this is the one that I would move into right now. And spoil the rug and everything. <laughs> we can replace the rug, but what a gorgeous house. I like Lynn Bracken's house. It's pretty, it's like the, the long drapes. And I the like Lynn Bracken. Oh, God. All her clothes, <laughs> I just, I got obsessed with them to a point where, I think when I was 15 or 16, I was in transition year and, and we were doing like a, like a... Going to school with a cape. Great, <laughs> I, I totally would. I was going to school in like rollers. I was mad into like the 50s look. And then around that time, I started watching things like Cloosh and I got my hair cut like Jane Fonda and Cloosh. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, God, you were really getting into this, some hardcore films. But this was like, a Taxi Driver was also 12 as well. That was another foundation. Ta- no, Taxi Driver is what? Because <laughs> oh, you can identify with Jodie Foster's character. And, I think it's sort of, the, oh it is, to, to me, it was the fascination of the underbelly and the world underneath a city and these kind of the dark corners um but it was also the kind of there was a romanticism in taxi driver there was dark characters in it there were just people that didn't um you just didn't see it's a beautiful tragedy and it's got jazz music and it's kind of (laughs) you know intoxicating in that sense it's um and the same with this it just sort of you know, it, it ignites a fascination when you're an adolescent and a teen to dig deeper. And it's why, you know, I think some people are compelled constantly by the grisly details and true crime. And you just can't explain. I have always, I've got to ask you, I've always been uh, baffled as to why there's so many podcasts <laughs> out there which are like women having glasses of wine and going over <laughs> yeah. going over the most horrendously violent brutal murder crime scenes and trying to solve them so, yeah <laughs> I, like... I, I, I think there it's <laughs> it is this close proximity to danger um you know like I, I i this is kind of what my feature is about vaguely it's about um the proximity that you have to danger and serial killers and death is sort of the it's the thing that kind of spurs excitement and a sense of living you know it's that kind of you people who get close to the edge of a train station platform as the train is arriving to get that kind of thrill i think it's the same kind of energy um particularly for women i don't know if it's it's something to do with control because all of these stories are about these kind of faceless women who die by these powerful men who if you were to google any of their names they would come up as a footnote in ted bundy's story and that's kind of a horrible way to end Mm. up is your story is defined by the horrible human being and pathetic human being oh you've solved it for me and i I think it's about changing that narrative of it's reclaiming the stories of the victims yeah and kind of painting it as like you know he's not this monster this mythological beast that stopped the night he's a pathetic loser that you know couldn't have sex normally and all these women had to die and it's a shame we treat him with so much you know attention i just find true crime stories so um unnerving because it's like horror horror. you kind of love that kind of like you know and you're alone in the house and you're watching it and something goes like you just i love that energy and i cannot explain it because i know it's ghoulish and morbid and macabre but but you just explained it it's sort of that that uh, i wrote an essay recently because i was asked about my favorite film and and what it meant to me and i wrote about halloween and seeing halloween when i was six (laughs) and it was just when my parents were divorcing oh 
I saw, uh, just as a side note, when I was 15, the day my parents told me they were going to divorce, I watched Requiem for a Dream. Oh, Jesus oh. Christ. God. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's Talking about psychically com- scare you. And it's like com- compounding the emotion you've been feeling. Oh, my God. Just like, Can you watch listen, it? Have you watched it since? Or have you I been have able to watch not, it since? No, I have not at all. Even the, the mm. when I see pictures of it, I get the little tremor because it's, it was immediately afterwards said it was like could hear my mum crying and it was like okay we need to oh, sit down and you're just yes. like this is after this film see oh. I came out of watching Halloween feeling like I was able to handle that film so you're therefore sick, I'm stronger I'm stronger than I than than you know this is a film that I shouldn't be watching it's not for children but I was able to handle that mm-hmm. so I'm actually you know it was a safe way to to test out your your fear response and your and sort of purge a lot of anxiety yeah but to watch requiem for a dream my god i'd be in therapy <laughs> my film that i have a i have a really bad emotional connection to is um with Neil and i mm. because i watched my that, brothers uh i watched that in a in a really <coughs> difficult i'm just i'm just just carrying on there yeah. kevin i watched that in a really low low point uh in my life and um and it really just dragged me down deeper into the pit of despair. Yeah. And uh, those films actually just get really uncomfortable. You know that you just get unlucky watching at these slumps. It's like yeah. they are great pieces of art, but you know you can never go back to it because of the association of that place. It's like you know you're going to go back to the, that place no matter um, when you watch it again in your life. Yeah. When people tell me Within a Lie is hilarious, I'm like going, no, it's the most depressing film that's ever made. It's wonderful, but it's so fucking bleak and depressing yeah. and I never mm. want to experience it again because of the emotional state I was in when I watched it. Um, so God, Wrecking for a Dream. God, I, can, <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. And yeah. Um, yeah man. I think it's that kind of, you then wonder the choices you make as a writer later on, are they affected by, you know, do you want to go there are some places you're comfortable to go like my film is about someone having an affair with a serial killer and you know um, crossing that line as to whether they're going to be a killer or they're going to be a victim or a perpetrator and it, it you know oh that's interesting it's mm-hmm. um and it's all about sexual assault and coming uh, overcoming it and trying to regain a sense of control over your body um so it's a body horror and it's a Psychosexual. No, I, don't give it all away. Don't don't. I, I I definitely can't. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, it's just it's all of these things that you know I'm comfortable writing about. But then if I was to make a film along the veins of Requiem for a Dream, I think that might actually kill me. <laughs> it'd be, it'd be, like, it'd, no, but that's the power of movies, and it's I. I I think you've got to personalize stories and it's got to be, it has to be something that only you can tell in your own way and go towards what scares yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was it said that recently, actually? It's not right what you want to see. It's right what scares you. And I think it's, it's yeah. got to be, but you know, there are, you also got to mind your own headspace in it. Like even, even writing this film, I just finished a draft of it last week and it's heavy territory to, to exist in where you come out of it and you're like, I need to fucking write a comedy <laughs> or something a bit more life affirming because. Listen, I don't like to uh, 
when I'm t- I've been offered projects in the past and I've thought I know a way that you could do it and I know that I would enjoy watching the version of it but I cannot spend three months yeah. in the space that would be required to write that mm-hmm. it would just it would it would really put me in a very blue mood and I just don't want to do that and I can't remember what filmmaker said it but he said people that are very comfortable in their personal lives I have much more uh, unafraid to go to the dark places yeah. in their art because they know they've got, got a, a safe place to go back a, to kind of a, a jetty from which to jump off at and, and back on yeah and it's usually why a lot of comedians are in a very dark place and they go to a place that makes them happy um and I don't know whether there's any truth to that, but it is a fascinating. It does sort of make thing. sense because I, I think it's same with acting as well. Like you, you know, actors who are able to go to these really, really, really dark places um, effectively, they must have some kind of grounding to do it without turning into an insane person. And you know, you can understand why people drink a lot to kind of to to smooth that over, but. Um, it is. It, it's something that doesn't get said a lot with writers. Is you know, taking on a project, it's easy to kind of look at down, look down the barrel of it and go, "Oh, I can totally get into this headspace." But when you think about how long that film is going to potentially take in development, it's a it's a prolonged period of time to be in a place yeah. that you might not be comfortable in. You really have to know your own bar- your own boundaries and limitations to know how you're going to uh, react to it. I look at projects now and I think, okay, you're asking me for two years of a commitment and I don't know that I can commit to that because that's how yeah. long it's going to take between one draft, two drafts, three drafts, waiting for notes back, doing the next draft and yeah, it it's such a long and sometimes... Been like, on films that have been over five years in development. I had one right. that went ten years <laughs> Hey, come here. I'm, I've worked on animated features. <laughs> <laughs> Long time. <laughs> Long time. The, um... Um, but it, it's vital, what you're saying there, it's vital for me when I pick projects now that I have that I have that enthusiasm, that there's something, even if the story isn't right, right or whatever it is, but there's that there's something that connects with me that I know will propel me, that, that I want to... That I want to stay on board, and I want to give it everything uh, to see at th- this film made because I can see something. There's something there. And that is a, but, it's a um, tough lesson that comes with experience as well of people who take on yeah. uh, projects, and I've certainly done it as well. Of projects I'm not 100% really getting my able to get my hands around and and figure out what it is. They are harder projects to work on. They are ultimately not as great as you can possibly make it because you're limited in terms of what you mm-hmm. can give to it. Um, but those are the things that kind of come with experience and knowing what you are good at and not what you're trying to be good at, what you are good at. And um, that's a hard lesson to learn too. I've also chosen projects though based on how much I like the other person and how much I personally will gain from working yeah. with them. Like just, just I did a project for a director friend where I was getting paid piss, uh, literal <laughs> bottles of piss. <laughs> but no, but I 
needed to have that collaborative experience with someone that made me laugh so yeah. much that that trusted me that got what I was about that enjoyed what I was bringing to the table and it was just so affirming and it lifted me up and after years and years of just being um questioned and second guessed and and blockades been put in front of you because the process just requires it to get to work with somebody that makes your day it was fun yeah this just makes a day it's like oh i get to work on this project with with this person for this week and it lifts your spirits and you you end up going into the next project where it's like oh i'm not the problem you're the problem because i can work Mm -hmm. with other people and i can have a great relationship so it's it's not me it's just us it's it's such a delicate balance like i i do you know you need to find those collaborations and really really um keep them and work on them um like me and my producer claire mccabe who's done my last two shorts we just have such a great shorthand but we also just are aware of just how easily and quickly things can turn toxic for no reason it's not anybody's Mm -hmm. intention to do that ever but sometimes it is but it's the it's the duty of us as leaders on the set to make sure that everybody is happy and even though things are going to get stressful you think you know voices might get raised there might be disagreements we need a baseline of trust established otherwise things are going to get pretty miserable pretty fast and nobody is in this business to be miserable because if we wanted to be miserable we could have made money doing anything else because Will what are films films are they're fun (laughs) we just talked over but I think it was worth it (laughs) one of the great endings I think in movies great shootout as well a great shootout yeah but you're the guy that gets away with it and the captain walks away with his arms held up his back to him almost saying you wouldn't dare I know your type I know who you are and he's shoots him in the back and kills him and it's such a dirty thing to do as well it's just like oh jesus like and it's just even the way tall dudley smith falls dirty cop from now on he sold himself out he's a he's a hero but he's a dirty hero and even at the end it's all sweeped under the rug as well it's just like you know to help him with his career he will he will agree to lie in order sweep it up yeah keep the keep what we've seen which is a really dirty corrupt system he's going to allow it to continue he got rid of one bad apple but you know it's not exactly a happy ending it's it's good that our two characters two surviving characters are still alive but um it's a happy ending for bud i think because he realizes he's better off out of the system And it's sort of like, it's a kind of a just ending for him. He doesn't get to be this violent enforcer anymore. He has to be a paraplegic and, or at least some way kind of, I think he is a paraplegic in the book, if I remember. Really? So at the end, when he's in the car, he can't move his legs? I think he is. It does seem to hint at him having a pretty serious condition at the end of this film i mean i know he can't talk but he's he's it does seem like he's infirmed i don't think it's overstating it to say that this film should be in the same standing as chinatown 
Oh, definitely. Now, you've been talking about that. I had completely forgotten that Russell Crowe survived. So I'm seeing him. I'm like going, oh, he does survive? <laughs> oh, so, so I'm, I'm, I have been genuinely watching the film. And, the music um, swells as you, you see him again. And you're like, oh. And she's wow. got a new haircut. Looks very Marilyn. That yellow dress. I have to, I have to find the mm. pattern for it and make it. She's no longer dressing like the... She's no longer a call girl. She's the shop girl from uh, Bisbee, Arizona. It's an amazing film. It really is an amazing film. It's so well crafted. It's uh, so well written. Uh, performers are fantastic. It's up there. It's As you just said, it's up there. It should be spoken about in the same breath as Chinatown mm-hmm. and um, other noirs. She's great in it as well, uh, Kim Basinger. Would she's not doing a lot but what she's doing is it's all exactly what you want yeah move his arms anyway he can do a there's sort of just this sadness that's permeating every part of her it's even the final shot of Bexley is just so kind of there's a little bit of a you know a, a tense realisation or melancholy at the end it's kind of nice the world was prettier back then though just the cars just the architecture everything just felt a lot more designed but Rena as you as you beautifully put it earlier on it's the 1950s mirage all it is (laughs) is a mirage because it's absolutely foul and decrepit underneath beautiful film wow I loved it absolutely loved it so that was the sixty first time you've seen it. I think it's probably oh, in that, that arena, all right. Yeah, like it's um, it, it's it's so embedded in my head that I, you know, even on subtitles, you you know exactly what score is playing over each sequence or piece of music. It's that level of obsession that has um that's been there <laughs> since uh, I was twelve years old. Um. But it yeah. is it, it's it's not the only it. films from that. Obviously there's more darker films that I liked. What other ones? Cluch. Cluch is a big one. I'd say like if I if I had to pick a film that was sort of characteristic of the journey of being on as a as a film lover and filmmaker, that's the film that is still kind of there as the film I want to make and emulate, I think. Renook, where can people find you? On Twitter at a, any given hour of any day most likely I will be there um, at Renuk Niji or I-O-G-H-N-A-C-H-N-I-G We'll retweet out your handle I thoroughly enjoyed listening to um, Renuk all your experiences in development and making your own stuff but um, this is one of my favourite chats that we've done Ah, Yeah You say that to everybody Cheers Renuk (laughs) Fantastic And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show. The full episode, plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. Mini bits. Another new episode. Of this Patreon podcast. Exclusive. The best bits podcast with Will and This is for you, not 
Kevin, how are you? Hi, honey. How are you? Oh, you know, I've got this. I've got my corns sorted out. I went to the Chiroptus the other day and uh, she Your said... corn? Uh, my corns. Did you, ever get, did you ever get corns? No. Did you know what a corn is? Yeah, it's a bunion on your foot, isn't it? Yeah, like in between your toes and stuff like that. Do you, do you not wear any shoes like around the house you walk no, barefoot? No, I, I, I wear, no, it's the opposite. GA shorts. It's the opposite. I wear incredibly tight shoes. Like those Chinese women. Oh. Who get their feet bound, who had their feet bound, like, you know, before the turn of this yeah. last century. And so they had incredible corns and bunions. This is a great opener for a mini bits episode where we get people disgusted. <laughs> Squally, it's episode 73 of the mini bits. <laughs> I'm Kevin, your Will. This is yeah. our Patreon podcast. Thank you to all our lovely patrons. Yeah. A few of you have jumped in recently. I don't know what we said. We try to goad people into joining up every single episode. And then every so often, it's like a lot of people join because of one specific episode. And yeah. I'm like, what did we, how did we say it? What did we say on that episode? It's different <laughs> to the other 270 episodes. Maybe it didn't sound as desperate. Maybe we said, don't join. Maybe reverse psychology. That's how we should do it. Reverse psychology. Don't join up to our patron. Don't. <laughs> cancel. You don't des- Everybody you, cancel. You don't deserve to be in this group. We don't want you. We don't we like don't the look of you. you. We, don't, we don't need anybody. <laughs> it's just us. It's absolutely just us. Hey, should we tell people, we, we did, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't say it on mic especially so early. We did an interview with the Irish Examiner last Friday. We did. Yeah. And uh, how do you think yeah. I how do you think I did? I I I think you did all right. Like you didn't interrupt me once, so I was <laughs> delighted with how I came across. But you know, there's no sort of time limit on this. We don't know when it's going to get posted. One of our friends was saying Kathy at the cinema was saying that their interview with did they do the examiner as well? It was six uh, months yeah. before it posted. And, and the Guardian, I'm pretty sure. They were, they were profiled in the Gar- Guardian as well. Yeah, but we don't do any really promotion. Like nah. We don't do anything. Well, this is our first time getting any sort of like proper coverage, which is going to be mad. So um, uh, listen to all you listeners who have uh, found us before we explode. You're you're you're, you're an OG. Bust. You're an OG <laughs> listener before Kevin starts getting gold chains from all his Patreon dash. I think I'm more of a silver than a gold. I think oh, yeah. my uh, undertones suit more silver. But, uh, yeah. I just want to die. Those I, are my Prince Albert. <laughs> Your hat? <laughs> yeah. I want Speaking one of, of the, which. I want one of those diamond studs in my tooth. That's all I want. So I can go bing whenever I'm on a call. Oh, uh, yeah. Bing. I usually just, you know, wink and like glitch. Yeah. Like starlight twinkle. <laughs> speaking of which, I interrupted you. What, what, we, what, did, what did you want to speak of which? Start the timer. Oh, I forgot. You may as well. Start the timer. They, all, all these lucky loos are listening in and, and they're wondering, what are we going to be talking about? But we have to start talking about them after. Yeah. We, we say goodbye. But look, I wanted to talk to you about, um, well, you've seen a few things. You've seen the new Godzilla film. Yes. I've seen the first Omen. Uh, I saw Scoop as well. That, oh, uh, we're looking Netflix forward to watching thing. that. We already see, okay. Okay. I'll save my thoughts. And right. um, what else did I see? I made notes, but sure. It doesn't really matter. I think I saw it. And I was going to go through all the summer releases and see what oh, takes your fancy. Okay. Okay. I'm looking forward because I don't actually know what's what's on the horizon. So um, I'm Well, the Joker to your... 2 trailer came out today. I saw it. 
Yes, I watched that. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of Chicago. Yeah, it's kind of like you see it's all very much in the mind's eye. It, they're calling it a jukebox musical. Am I right in saying that? I think you're right in saying that. So, look, hey, listen. Uh, I, I actually, what, I, what it did remind me of <laughs> was that I want to watch, rewatch The Joker because I saw it in the cinema and I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. It was kind of a bold new direction. Uh, I'm just going to go cinema. back and watch the episodes from the Batman 66 show. The Joker episodes. Oh yeah, that's going to be just to fill me in, like on the lore, get up to speed, get you right up to speed. (laughs) And you'll be there going, where, where are all the guys in the purple suits with the masks? Where, where are they going to show up? And like, you know, a weird time though, where we have the Penguin TV show with Colin Farrell coming out, which is a totally different canon version of the Penguin. Then you have this offshoot of Joker, which isn't. Its own universe entirely. Mm. And then you have the old Batman films that you can watch. Right. And, uh, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's just, I don't know. I'm kind There's of so many IP. But like it's this. just everywhere. What, well, what's happened is the world, the comic book world has very much entered the, the film world. It's where you could have different runs, totally different runs of a character by it's different insane. authors. And there would be totally different riffs on it and stuff. Oh, it's oh, just this is insane. the thing. Kevin, so I'm only catching up on this. You mentioned it to me on a on a pod, on a podcast. Wait, was it on one of those? Uh, it was the last. Show? It was the last mini bits. Uh, you, you said everyone's describing stuff as insane recently. And have you started noticing it though? Only, only, only with people trying to rise you. That's the only type, only where place where I've noticed people. No, people under score are trying to every, rise oh you. Oh my god! Oh my god! I could start posting though, like, um, tweets, comments, TikToks. Uh, articles, anything insane is everywhere. This is insane. That's insane. It's insane. There was a festival just going on about this insane lineup. I was okay. like, oh, it's a mentally ill lineup. Okay, <laughs> it's just it's it's everywhere. And the other, th- do you know the other thing that's also bothering me lately? Wow. wow. And this has been bothering me for years and years and years. It used to be that everyone used to misspell definitely. They'd go defiantly. Okay. Oh, it's defiantly whatever. It would just there are morons, but no. <laughs> I just keep noticing everyone keeps spelling a lot as one word, A-L-O-T, a lot. Where has where have they gotten into their heads that a lot is one word? It's the same way that people will write every time as one word. What's the one that you've, you've pulled me up on a few times and I can't get it right? Compliment. Compliment. I can't, <laughs> but I can't get it right. It's like the you I. because I told you the other day. Yeah, and I went searching for it and I couldn't find it because I had to actually had to an, use it. If there's an I in compliment, it's yeah. I'm paying you oh, a compliment. That's a good way to remember it. Okay, good. And then compliment. I, I wrote that to you. But you did. And I went to try and find it because I was I found myself writing the word compliments. And I went, shit, Kevin. But, I, but you, you gave me a thumbs up, which meant in my world that, yeah, I read that. Thanks. But I did, right? I'm talking about a couple of days later when I was faced with the exact same hurdle of writing the word compliment, I went, okay, what did Kevin say again about compliment? There's an I and the E. What did he say? So I went searching for it and I found it, I think. And I went, oh, the I is paying me a compliment or I'm giving you a compliment. It's insane how little you can retain information. It's insane. (laughs) Come here, let's start talking about what we watched. Come on. Did you start the timer? 
Yeah, it's it's gone. It's ticking. It's ticking down. The world's going oh, to explode. You know, I have to put in the sound effect. I have to. I have to line oh. up all my sound effects. When you said start I have the timer, like, I have a whole it's... fucking. I have a whole soundboard. Here. <laughs> okay. Jesus Christ! Where's me fucking? What? Where's me ding dang ding? <laughs> here we go. The timer has started. There we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Right. 